This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of William Wilson by Edgar Allan Poe. It's read by Bill Cisna for LibriVox. It runs 53 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. William Wilson by Edgar Allan Poe This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Cisna. What say of it? What say of conscience grim? That specter in my path. Chamberlain's Pharaonida. Let me call myself for the present William Wilson. The fair page now lying before me need not be sullied with my real appellation. This has been already too much an object for the scorn, for the horror, for the detestation of my race. To the uttermost regions of the globe, have not the indignant winds bruited its unparalleled infamy? O oh, outcast of all outcasts, most abandoned! To the earth art thou not forever dead? To its honors, to its flowers, to its golden aspirations? And a cloud, dense, dismal, and limitless, does it not hang eternally between thy hopes and heaven? I would not, if I could, here or to-day, embody a record of my later years of unspeakable misery and unpardonable crime. This epoch, these later years, took unto themselves a sudden elevation in turpitude, whose origin alone it is my present purpose to assign. Men usually grow base by degrees. From me, in an instant, all virtue dropped bodily as a mantle. From comparatively trivial wickedness I passed, with the stride of a giant, into more than the enormities of an Elagabalus. What chance, what one event brought this evil thing to pass, bear with me while I relate. Death approaches, and the shadow which foreruns him has thrown a softening influence over my spirit. I long in passing through the dim valley for the sympathy, I had nearly said for the pity, of my fellow men. I would fain have them believe that I have been, in some measure, the slave of circumstances beyond human control. I would wish them to seek out for me, in the details I am about to give, some little oasis of fatality amid a wilderness of error. I would have them allow, what they cannot refrain from allowing, that although temptation may have erewhile existed as great, man was never thus at least tempted before certainly never thus fell. And is it therefore that he has never thus suffered? Have I not indeed been living in a dream? And am I not now dying a victim to the horror and the mystery of the wildest of all sublunary visions? I am the descendant of a race whose imaginative and easily excitable temperament has at all times rendered them remarkable and in my earliest infancy I gave evidence of having fully inherited the family character. As I advanced in years, it was more strongly developed, becoming for many reasons a cause of serious disquietude to my friends, and of positive injury to myself. 
I grew self-willed, addicted to the wildest caprices, and a prey to the most ungovernable passions. Weak-minded, and beset with constitutional infirmities akin to my own, my parents could do but little to check the evil propensities which distinguished me. Some feeble and ill-directed efforts resulted in complete failure on their part, and, of course, in total triumph on mine. Thenceforward my voice was a household law, and at an age when few children have abandoned their leading strings, I was left to the guidance of my own will, and became in all but name the master of my own actions. My earliest recollections of a school life are connected with a large, rambling Elizabethan house in a misty-looking village of England, where were a vast number of gigantic and gnarled trees, and where all the houses were excessively ancient. In truth, it was a dreamlike and spirit-soothing place, that venerable old town. At this moment, in fancy, I feel the refreshing chilliness of its deeply shadowed avenues, inhale the fragrance of its thousand shrubberies, and thrill anew with undefinable delight at the deep hollow note of the church bell, breaking each hour with sullen and sudden roar upon the stillness of the dusky atmosphere in which the fretted Gothic steeple lay embedded and asleep. It gives me perhaps as much of pleasure as I can now in any manner experience to dwell upon minute recollections of the school and its concerns. Steeped in misery as I am, misery, alas, only too real, I shall be pardoned for seeking relief, however slight and temporary, in the weakness of a few rambling details. These, moreover, utterly trivial and even ridiculous in themselves, assume to my fancy adventitious importance, as connected with a period and a locality where and when I recognized the first ambiguous monitions of the destiny which afterwards so fully overshadowed me. Let me then remember. The house, I have said, was old and irregular. The grounds were extensive, and a high and solid brick wall, topped with a bed of mortar and broken glass, encompassed the whole. This prison-like rampart formed the limit of our domain. Beyond it, we saw but thrice a week, once every Saturday afternoon, when, attended by two ushers, we were permitted to take brief walks in a body through some of the neighboring fields, and twice during Sunday, when we were paraded in the same formal manner to the morning and evening service in the one church of the village. Of this church, the principal of our school was pastor. With how deep a spirit of wonder and perplexity was I wont to regard him from our remote pew in the gallery, as with step solemn and slow he ascended the pulpit. This reverend man, with countenance so demurely benign, with robes so glossy and so clerically flowing, with wig so minutely powdered, so rigid, and so vast, could this be he who of late with sour visage and in snuffy habiliments administered ferule in hand the draconian laws of the academy? Oh, gigantic paradox, too utterly monstrous for solution! At an angle of the ponderous wall frowned a more ponderous gate. It was riveted and studded with iron bolts, 
and surmounted with jagged iron spikes. What impressions of deep awe did it inspire? It was never opened, save for the three periodical egressions and ingressions already mentioned. Then, in every creak of its mighty hinges, we found a plenitude of mystery, a world of matter for solemn remark, or for more solemn meditation. The extensive enclosure was irregular in form, having many capacious recesses. Of these, three or four of the largest constituted the playground. It was level and covered with fine, hard gravel. I well remember it had no trees, nor benches, nor anything similar within it. Of course, it was in the rear of the house. In front lay a small parterre, planted with box and other shrubs. But through this sacred division we passed only upon rare occasions indeed, such as a first advent to school, or final departure thence, or perhaps, when a parent or friend having called for us, we joyfully took our way home for the Christmas or Midsummer Holy Days. But the house! How quaint an old building was this! To me how veritably a palace of enchantment! There really was no end to its windings, to its incomprehensible subdivisions. It was difficult, at any given time, to say with certainty upon which of its two stories one happened to be. From each room to every other there were sure to be found three or four steps, either an ascent or descent. Then the lateral branches were innumerable, inconceivable, and so returning in upon themselves that our most exact ideas in regard to the whole mansion were not very far different from those with which we pondered upon infinity. During the five years of my residence here, I was never able to ascertain with precision in what remote locality lay the little sleeping apartment assigned to myself and some eighteen or twenty other scholars. The schoolroom was the largest in the house. I could not help thinking in the world. It was very long, narrow, and dismally low with pointed Gothic windows and a ceiling of oak. In a remote and terror-inspiring angle was a square enclosure of eight or ten feet, comprising the sanctum, during hours, of our principal, the Reverend Dr. Bransby. It was a solid structure with massy door, sooner than open in which the absence of the Dominic we would all have willingly perished by the penfort et dur. In other angles were two other similar boxes, far less reverenced indeed, but still greatly matters of awe. One of these was the pulpit of the classical usher, one of the English and mathematical. Interspersed about the room, crossing and recrossing in endless irregularity, were innumerable benches and desks, black, ancient, and time-worn, piled desperately with much-bethumbed books, and so beseamed with initial letters, names at full length, grotesque figures, and other multiplied efforts of the knife, as to have entirely lost what little of original form might have been their portion in days long departed. A huge bucket with water stood at one extremity of the room, and a clock of stupendous dimensions at the other. Encompassed by the massy walls of this venerable academy, I passed, yet not in tedium or disgust, the years of the third lustrum of my life. The teeming brain of childhood requires no external world of incident to occupy or amuse it. 
and the apparently dismal monotony of a school was replete with more intense excitement than my riper youth has derived from luxury, or my full manhood from crime. Yet I must believe that my first mental development had in it much of the uncommon, even much of the outré. Upon mankind at large the events of very early existence rarely leave in mature age any definite impression. All is gray shadow, a weak and irregular remembrance, an indistinct regathering of feeble pleasures and phantasmagoric pains. With me, this is not so. In childhood I must have felt with the energy of a man what I now find stamped upon memory in lines as vivid, as deep, and as durable as the exergs of the Carthaginian medals. Yet, in fact, in the fact of the world's view, how little there was to remember. The morning's awakening, the nightly summons to bed, the connings, the recitations, the periodical half-holidays and perambulations, the playground with its broils, its pastimes, its intrigues. In truth, the ardor, the enthusiasm, and the imperiousness of my disposition soon rendered me a marked character among my schoolmates, and by slow but natural gradations gave me an ascendancy over all not greatly older than myself. Over all, with a single exception. This exception was found in the person of a scholar who, although no relation, bore the same Christian and surname as myself, a circumstance, in fact, little remarkable, for, notwithstanding a noble descent, mine was one of those everyday appellations which seem, by prescriptive right, to have been, time out of mind, common property of the mob. In this narrative I have therefore designated myself as William Wilson, a fictitious title not very dissimilar to the real. My namesake alone, of those who in school phraseology constituted our set, presumed to compete with me in the studies of the class, in the sports and broils of the playground, to refuse implicit belief in my assertions and the submission to my will, indeed to interfere with my arbitrary dictation in any respect whatsoever. If there is on earth a supreme and unqualified despotism, it is the despotism of a master mind in boyhood over the less energetic spirits of its companions." Wilson's rebellion was to me a source of the greatest embarrassment, the more so as, in spite of the bravado with which in public I made a point of treating him and his pretensions, I secretly felt that I feared him, and could not help thinking the equality which he maintained so easily with myself a proof of his true superiority, since not to be overcome cost me a perpetual struggle. Yet this superiority, even this equality, was in truth acknowledged by no one but myself. Our associates, by some unaccountable blindness, seemed not to even suspect it. Indeed, his competition, his resistance, and especially his impertinent and dogged interference with my purposes, were not more pointed than private. He appeared to be destitute alike of the ambition which urged, and of the passionate energy of mind which enabled me, to excel." In his rivalry he might have been supposed actuated solely by a whimsical desire to thwart, astonish, or mortify myself, although there were times when I could not help observing, with a feeling made up of wonder, abasement, and pique, that he mingled with his injuries, his insults, or his contradictions, 
a certain most inappropriate and assuredly most unwelcome affectionateness of manner. I could only conceive this singular behavior to arise from a consummate self-conceit assuming the vulgar airs of patronage and protection. Perhaps it was this latter trait in Wilson's conduct, conjoined with our identity of name, and the mere accident of our having entered the school upon the same day, which set afloat the notion that we were brothers among the senior classes of the academy, these do not usually inquire with much strictness into the affairs of their juniors. I have before said, or should have said, that Wilson was not, in the most remote degree, connected to my family. But assuredly, if we had been brothers, we must have been twins." For after leaving Dr. Bransby's, I casually learned that my namesake was born on the 19th of January, 1813, and this is a somewhat remarkable coincidence, for that day is precisely that of my own nativity. It may seem strange that, in spite of the continual anxiety occasioned me by the rivalry of Wilson, and his intolerable spirit of contradiction, I could not bring myself to hate him altogether. We had, to be sure, nearly every day a quarrel in which, yielding me publicly the palm of victory, he, in some manner, contrived to make me feel that it was he who had deserved it. Yet a sense of pride on my part, and a veritable dignity on his own, kept us always upon what are called speaking terms. While there were many points of strong congeniality in our tempers, operating to awake in me a sentiment which our position alone, perhaps, prevented from ripening into friendship. It is difficult indeed to define, or even to describe, my real feelings towards him. They formed a motley and heterogeneous admixture, some petulant animosity, which was not yet hatred, some esteem, more respect, much fear, with a world of uneasy curiosity. To the moralist it will be unnecessary to say, in addition, that Wilson and myself were the most inseparable of companions. It was no doubt the anomalous state of affairs existing between us which turned all my attacks upon him, and they were many, either open or covert, into the channel of banter or practical joke, giving pain while assuming the aspect of mere fun, rather than into a more serious and determined hostility. But my endeavors on this head were by no means uniformly successful, even when my plans were the most wittily concocted, for my namesake had much about him in character of that unassuming and quiet austerity which, while enjoying the poignancy of its own jokes, has no heel of Achilles in itself, and absolutely refuses to be laughed at. I could find indeed but one vulnerable point, and that, lying in a personal peculiarity arising perhaps from constitutional disease, would have been spared by any antagonist less at his wit's end than myself. My rival had a weakness in the focal or guttural organs, which precluded him from raising his voice at any time above a very low whisper. Of this defect, I did not fail to take what poor advantage lay in my power. Wilson's retaliations in kind were many, and there was one form of his practical wit that disturbed me beyond measure. How his sagacity first discovered at all that so petty a thing would vex me is a question I could never solve. But having discovered, he habitually practiced the annoyance. I had always felt aversion to my uncourtly patronymic, 
and its very common, if not plebeian, praenomen. The words were venom in my ears. And when, upon the day of my arrival, a second William Wilson came also to the academy, I felt angry with him for bearing the name, and doubly disgusted with the name because a stranger bore it, who would be the cause of its twofold repetition, who would constantly be in my presence, and whose concerns, in the ordinary routine of the school business, must inevitably, on account of the detestable coincidence, be often confounded with my own. The feeling of vexation thus engendered grew stronger with every circumstance tending to show resemblance, moral or physical, between my rival and myself. I had not then discovered the remarkable fact that we were of the same age, but I saw that we were of the same height, and I perceived that we were even singularly alike in general contour of person and outline of feature. I was galled, too, by the rumor touching a relationship which had grown current in the upper forms. In a word, nothing could more seriously disturb me, although I scrupulously concealed such disturbance, that any allusion to a similarity of mind, person, or condition existing between us. But in truth, I had no reason to believe that, with the exception of the matter of relationship, and in the case of Wilson himself, this similarity had ever been made a subject of comment, or even observed at all by our schoolfellows. That he observed it, in all its bearings, and as fixedly as I, was apparent. But that he could discover in such circumstances so fruitful a field of annoyance, can only be attributed, as I said before, to his more than ordinary penetration. His cue, which was to perfect an imitation of myself, lay both in words and in actions, and most admirably did he play his part. My dress it was an easy matter to copy. My dress it was an easy matter to copy. My gait and general manner were, without difficulty, appropriated. In spite of his constitutional defect, even my voice did not escape him. My louder tones were, of course, unattempted. But then the key, it was identical. And his singular whisper, it grew the very echo of my own. How greatly this most exquisite portraiture harassed me, for it could not justly be termed a caricature, I will not now venture to describe. I had but one consolation, in the fact that the imitation, apparently, was noticed by myself alone, and that I had to endure only the knowing and strangely sarcastic smiles of my namesake himself. Satisfied with having produced in my bosom the intended effect, he seemed to chuckle in secret over the sting he had inflicted and was characteristically disregardful of the public applause which the success of his witty endeavors might have so easily elicited, that the school, indeed, did not feel his design, perceive its accomplishment, and participate in his sneer, was for many anxious months a riddle I could not resolve. Perhaps the gradation of his copy rendered it not so readily perceptible, or more possibly, I owed my security to the master heir of the copyist, who, disdaining the letter, which in a painting is all the obtuse can see, gave but the full spirit of his original for my individual contemplation and chagrin. I have already more than once spoken of the disgusting air of patronage which he assumed toward me, and of his frequent officious interference with my will. This interference often took the ungracious character of advice, advice not openly given, but hinted or insinuated. 
I received it with a repugnance which gained strength as I grew in years. Yet, at this distant day, let me do him the simple justice to acknowledge that I can recall no occasion when the suggestions of my rival were on the side of those errors or follies so usual to his immature age and seeming inexperience. That his moral sense, at least, if not his general talents and worldly wisdom, was far keener than my own, and that I might to-day have been a better and thus a happier man had I less frequently rejected the counsels embodied in those meaning whispers, which I then but too cordially hated and too bitterly despised. As it was, I at length grew restive in the extreme under his distasteful supervision, and daily resented more and more openly what I considered his intolerable arrogance. I have said that, in the first years of our connection as schoolmates, my feelings in regard to him might have easily ripened into friendship. But in the latter months of my residency at the academy, although the intrusion of his ordinary manner had, beyond doubt, in some measure abated, my sentiments, in nearly similar proportion, partook very much of positive hatred. Upon one occasion he saw this, I think, and afterwards avoided, or made a show of avoiding me. It was about the same period, if I remember aright, that, in an altercation of violence with him, in which he was more than usually thrown off his guard, and spoke and acted with an openness of demeanor rather foreign to his nature, I discovered, or fancied I discovered, in his accent, his air, and general appearance, a something which first startled, and then deeply interested me, by bringing to mind dim visions of my earliest infancy, wild, confused, and thronging memories of a time when memory herself was yet unborn. I cannot better describe the sensation which oppressed me than by saying that I could with difficulty shake off the belief of my having been acquainted with the being who stood before me, at some epoch very long ago, some point in the past even infinitely remote. The delusion, however, faded rapidly as it came, and I mention it at all but to define the day of the last conversation I there held with my singular namesake. The huge old house, with its countless subdivisions, had several large chambers communicating with each other, where slept the greater number of the students. There were, however, as must necessarily happen in a building so awkwardly planned, many little nooks or recesses, the odds and ends of the structure, and these the economic ingenuity of Dr. Bransby had also fitted up as dormitories, although being the merest closets, they were capable of accommodating but a single individual. One of these small apartments was occupied by Wilson. One night, about the close of my fifth year at the school, and immediately after the altercation just mentioned, Finding every one wrapped in sleep, I arose from bed, and lamp in hand, stole through a wilderness of narrow passages from my own bedroom to that of my rival. I had long been plotting one of those ill-natured pieces of practical wit at his expense, in which I hitherto had been so uniformly unsuccessful. It was my intention now to put my scheme in operation, and I resolved to make him feel the whole extent of the malice with which I was imbued. Having reached his closet, I noiselessly entered, leaving the lamp with a shade over it on the outside. I advanced a step and listened to the sound of his tranquil breathing. Assured of his being asleep, I returned, took the light, 
and with it again approached the bed. Close curtains were around it, which in the prosecution of my plan I slowly and quietly withdrew, when the bright rays fell vividly upon the sleeper, and my eyes at the same moment upon his countenance. I looked, and a numbness, an iciness of feeling instantly pervaded my frame. My breast heaved, my knees tottered, my whole spirit became possessed with an objectless, yet intolerable horror. Gasping for breath, I lowered the lamp in still nearer proximity to the face. Were these, these the lineaments of William Wilson? I saw indeed that they were his, but I shook as if with a fit of the ague, in fancying they were not. What was there about them to confound me in this manner? I gazed, while my brain reeled with a multitude of incoherent thoughts. Not thus he appeared, assuredly not thus, in the vivacity of his waking hours. The same name, the same contour of person, the same day of arrival at the academy. And then his dogged and meaningless imitation of my gait, my voice, my habits, and my manner. Was it, in truth, within the bounds of human possibility, that what I now saw was the result merely of the habitual practice of this sarcastic imitation? Awe-stricken, and with a creeping shudder, I extinguished the lamp, passed silently from the chamber, and left at once the halls of that old academy, never to enter them again. After a lapse of some months, spent at home in mere idleness, I found myself a student at Eton. The brief interval had been sufficient to enfeeble my remembrance of the events of Dr. Bransby's, or at least to effect a material change in the nature of the feelings with which I remembered them. The truth, the tragedy of the drama, was no more. I could now find room to doubt the evidence of my senses, and seldom called up the subject at all, but with wonder at extent of human credulity, and a smile at the vivid force of the imagination which I hereditarily possessed. Neither was this species of skepticism likely to be diminished by the character of the life I led at Eton. The vortex of thoughtless folly into which I there so immediately and so recklessly plunged washed away all but the froth of my past hours, engulfed at once every solid or serious impression, and left to memory only the various levities of a former existence. I do not wish, however, to trace the course of my miserable profligacy here, a profligacy which set at defiance the laws, while it eluded the vigilance of the institution. Three years of folly, passed without profit, had but given me rooted habits of vice, and added, in a somewhat unusual degree, to my bodily stature, when, after a week of soulless dissipation, I invited a small party of the most dissolute students to secret carousal in my chambers. We met at a late hour of the night, for our debaucheries were to be faithfully protracted until morning. The wine flowed freely, and there were not wanting other and perhaps more dangerous seductions, so that the gray dawn had already faintly appeared in the east, while our delirious extravagance was at its height. Madly flushed with cards and intoxication, I was in the act of insisting upon a toast of more than wanted profanity, when my attention was suddenly diverted by the violent, though partial, unclosing of the door of the apartment, and by the eager voice of a servant from without. He said that some person, apparently in great haste, demanded to speak with me in the hall. Wildly excited with wine, the unexpected interruption rather delighted than surprised me. I staggered forward at once, and a few steps brought me to the vestibule of the building. In this low and small room there hung no lamp, and now no light at all was admitted, 
save that of the exceedingly feeble dawn which made its way through the semicircular window. As I put my foot over the threshold, I became aware of the figure of a youth of about my own height, and habited in a white kerseymere morning frock, cut in the novel fashion of the one I myself wore at the moment. This the faint light enabled me to perceive, but the features of his face I could not distinguish. Upon my entering he strode hurriedly up to me, and seizing me by the arm with a gesture of petulant impatience, whispered the words, "'William Wilson!' in my ear. I grew perfectly sober in an instant. There was that in the manner of the stranger, and in the tremulous shake of his uplifted finger, as he held it between my eyes and the light, which filled me with unqualified amazement. But it was not this which had so violently moved me. It was the pregnancy of solemn admonition in the singular, low, hissing utterance. And above all, it was the character, the tone, the key of these few simple and familiar yet whispered syllables, which came with a thousand thronging memories of bygone days, and struck upon my soul with the shock of a galvanic battery. Ere I could recover the use of my senses, he was gone. Although this event failed not of a vivid effect upon my disordered imagination, yet it was evanescent as vivid. For some weeks, indeed, I busied myself in earnest inquiry, or was wrapped in a cloud of morbid speculation. I did not pretend to disguise from my perception the identity of the singular individual who thus perseveringly interfered with my affairs, and harassed me with his insinuated counsel. But who and what was this Wilson? And whence came he? And what were his purposes? Upon neither of these points could I be satisfied, merely ascertaining in regard to him that a sudden accident in his family had caused his removal from Dr. Bransby's academy on the afternoon of the day in which I myself had eloped. But in a brief period I ceased to think upon the subject, my attention being all absorbed in a contemplated departure for Oxford. Thither I soon went, the uncalculating vanity of my parents furnishing me with an outfit and annual establishment, which would enable me to indulge at will in the luxury already so dear to my heart, to vie in profuseness of expenditure with the haughtiest heirs of the wealthiest earldoms in Great Britain. Excited by such appliances to vice, my constitutional temperament broke forth with redoubled ardor, and I spurned even the common restraints of decency in the mad infatuation of my revels. But it were absurd to pause in the detail of my extravagance. Let it suffice that among spendthrifts I outherited Herod, and that giving name to a multitude of novel follies, I added no brief appendix to the long catalogue of vices than usual in the most dissolute university of Europe. It could hardly be credited, however, that I had even here so utterly fallen from the gentlemanly estate as to seek acquaintance with the vilest arts of the gambler by profession, and, having become an adept in his despicable science, to practice it habitually as a means of increasing my already enormous income at the expense of the weak-minded among my fellow collegians. Such, nevertheless, was the fact." and the very enormity of this offense against all manly and honorable sentiment provided, beyond doubt, the main if not the sole reason of the impunity with which it was committed, who indeed among my most abandoned associates would not rather have disputed the clearest evidence of his senses than have suspected of such courses the gay, the frank, the generous William Wilson, the noblest and most commoner at Oxford, 
him whose follies, said his parasites, were but the follies of youth and unbridled fancy, whose errors but inimitable whim, whose darkest vice but a careless and dashing extravagance? I had been now two years successfully busied in this way, when there came to the university a young parvenu nobleman, Glendinning. Rich, said report, as Herodus Atticus, his riches, too, as easily acquired. I soon found him of weak intellect, and, of course, marked him as a fitting subject for my skill. I frequently engaged him in play, and contrived, with the gambler's usual art, to let him win considerable sums, the more effectually to entangle him in my snares. At length, my schemes being ripe, I met him, with the full intention that this meeting should be final and decisive, at the chambers of a fellow commoner, Mr. Preston, equally intimate with both, but who, to do him justice, entertained not an even remote suspicion of my design. To give this a better coloring, I had contrived to have assembled a party of some eight or ten, and was solicitously careful that the introduction of cards should appear accidental, and originate in the purpose of my contemplated dupe himself. To be brief upon a vile topic, none of the low finesse was omitted, so customary upon similar occasions that it is a just matter for wonder how any are still found so besotted as to fall its victim. We had protracted our sitting far into the night, and I had at length effected the maneuver of getting Glendinning as my sole antagonist. The game, too, was my favorite écarte. The rest of the company, interested in the extent of our play, had abandoned their own cards and were standing around us as spectators. The parvenu, who had been induced by my artifices in the early part of the evening to drink deeply, now shuffled, dealt, or played, with a wild nervousness of manner, for which his intoxication, I thought, might partially, but could not altogether account. In a very short period, he had become my debtor to a large amount, when, having taken a long draught of port, he did precisely what I had been coolly anticipating. He proposed to double our already extravagant stakes. With a well-feigned show of reluctance, and not until after my repeated refusal had seduced him into some angry words which gave a color of pique to my compliance, did I finally comply. The result, of course, did but prove how entirely the prey was in my toils. In less than an hour he had quadrupled his debt. For some time his countenance had been losing the florid tinge lent it by the wine, but now, to my astonishment, I perceived that it had grown to a pallor truly fearful. I say, to my astonishment, Glendinning had been represented to my eager inquiries as immeasurably wealthy, and the sums which he had as yet lost, although in themselves vast, could not, I supposed, very seriously annoy, much less so violently affect him. That he was overcome by the wine just swallowed was the idea which most readily presented itself. And, rather with a view to the preservation of my own character in the eyes of my associates than from any less interested motive, I was about to insist peremptorily upon a discontinuance of the play, when some expressions at my elbow from among the company, and an ejaculation evincing utter despair on the part of Glendinning, gave me to understand that I had effected his total ruin, under circumstances which, rendering him an object for the pity of all, should have protected him from the ill offices even of a fiend. What now might have been my conduct, it is difficult to say. 
The pitiable condition of my dupe had thrown an air of embarrassed gloom over all, and for some moments a profound silence was maintained, during which I could not help feeling my cheeks tingle with the many burning glances of scorn or reproach cast upon me by the less abandoned of the party. I will even own that an intolerable weight of anxiety was for a brief instant lifted from my bosom by the sudden and extraordinary interruption which ensued. The wide, heavy, folding doors of the apartment were all at once thrown open, to their full extent, with a vigorous and rushing impetuosity that extinguished, as if by magic, every candle in the room. Their light in dying enabled us just to perceive that a stranger had entered, about my own height, and closely muffled in a cloak. The darkness, however, was now total, and we could only feel that he was standing in our midst. Before any of us could recover from the extreme astonishment into which this rudeness had thrown all, we heard the voice of the intruder. "'Gentlemen,' he said in a low, distinct, and never-to-be-forgotten whisper, which thrilled to the very marrow of my bones, "'Gentlemen, I make no apology for this behavior, because in thus behaving I am but fulfilling a duty. You are beyond doubt.' uninformed of the true character of the person who has to-night won at Eckhart a large sum of money from Lord Glendinning. I will therefore put you upon an expeditious and decisive plan of obtaining this very necessary information. Please to examine at your leisure the inner linings of the cuff of his left sleeve, and the several little packages which may be found in the somewhat capacious pockets of his embroidered morning wrapper." While he spoke, so profound was the stillness that one might have heard a pin drop upon the floor. In ceasing, he departed at once, and as abruptly as he had entered. Can I? Shall I describe my sensations? Must I say that I felt all the horrors of the damned? Most assuredly, I had little time given for reflection. Many hands roughly seized me upon the spot, and lights were immediately reprocured. A search ensued. In the lining of my sleeve were found all the court cards essential in a cart, and in the pockets of my wrapper a number of packs, facsimiles of those used at our sittings, with the single exception that mine were of the species called technically arrondés, the honors being slightly convex at the ends, the lower cards slightly convex at the sides. In this disposition, the dupe who cuts, as customary, at the length of the pack, will invariably find that he cuts his antagonist an honor, while the gambler, cutting at the breadth, will as certainly cut nothing for his victim, which may count in the records of the game. Any burst of indignation upon this discovery would have affected me less than the silent contempt or the sarcastic composure with which it was received. Mr. Wilson, said our host, stooping to remove from beneath his feet an exceedingly luxurious cloak of rare furs. Mr. Wilson, this is your property. The weather was cold, and upon quitting my own room, I had thrown a cloak over my dressing wrapper, putting it off upon reaching the scene of play. I presume it is supererogatory to seek here, eyeing the folds of the garment with a bitter smile, for any farther evidence of your skill. Indeed, we have had enough. You will see the necessity, I hope, of quitting Oxford, at all events of quitting instantly my chambers. Abased, humbled to the dust as I then was, 
it is probable that I should have resented this galling language by immediate personal violence, had not my whole attention been at the moment arrested by a fact of the most startling character. The cloak which I had worn was of a rare description of fur. How rare, how extravagantly costly, I shall not venture to say. Its fashion, too, was of my own fantastic invention, for I was fastidious to an absurd degree of coxcombry in matters of this frivolous nature. When, therefore, Mr. Preston reached me that which he had picked up upon the floor and near the folding doors of the apartment, it was with an astonishment nearly bordering upon terror that I perceived my own already hanging on my arm, where I had no doubt unwittingly placed it, and that the one presented me was but its exact counterpart in every and even the minutest possible particular. The singular being who had so disastrously exposed me had been muffled, I remembered, in a cloak, and none had been worn at all by any of the members of our party, with the exception of myself. Retaining some presence of mind, I took the one offered me by Preston, placed it unnoticed over my own, left the apartment with a resolute scowl of defiance, and next morning, ere dawn of day, commenced a hurried journey from Oxford to the continent in a perfect agony of horror and of shame. I fled in vain. My evil destiny pursued me as if in exultation, and proved indeed that the exercise of its mysterious dominion had as yet only begun." Scarcely had I set foot in Paris ere I had fresh evidence of the detestable interest taken by this Wilson in my concerns. Years flew, while I experienced no relief. Villain! At Rome, with how untimely, yet with how spectral an officiousness, stepped he in between me and my ambition. At Vienna, too, at Berlin, and at Moscow. Where, in truth, had I not better cause to curse him within my heart? From his inscrutable tyranny did I at length flee, panic-stricken, as from a pestilence, and to the very ends of the earth I fled in vain. And again and again, in secret communion with my own spirit, would I demand the questions, Who is he? Whence came he? And what are his objects? But no answer was there found. And then I scrutinized with a minute scrutiny the forms, and the methods, and the leading traits of his impertinent supervision. But even here there was very little upon which to base a conjecture. It was noticeable, indeed, that in no one of the multiplied instances in which he had of late crossed my path, had he so crossed it except to frustrate those schemes, or to disturb those actions which, if fully carried out, might have resulted in bitter mischief." Poor justification this, in truth, for an authority so imperiously assumed. Poor indemnity for natural rights of self-agency so pertinaciously, so insultingly denied. I had also been forced to notice that my tormentor, for a very long period of time, while scrupulously and with miraculous dexterity maintaining his whim of an identity of apparel with myself, had so contrived it, in the execution of his varied interference with my will, that I saw not, at any moment, the features of his face. Be Wilson what he might, this, at least, was but the veriest of affectation, or of folly. Could he for an instant have supposed that, in my admonisher at Eton, in the destroyer of my honour at Oxford, 
in him who thwarted my ambition at Rome, my revenge at Paris, my passionate love at Naples, or what he falsely termed my avarice in Egypt, that in this my arch-enemy and evil genius could fail to recognize the William Wilson of my schoolboy days, the namesake, the companion, the rival, the hated and dreaded rival at Dr. Bransby's? Impossible! But let me hasten to the last eventful scene of the drama. Thus far, I had succumbed supinely to this imperious domination. The sentiment of deep awe with which I habitually regarded the elevated character, the majestic wisdom, the apparent omnipresence and omnipotence of Wilson, added to a feeling of even terror, with which certain other traits in his nature and assumptions inspired me, had operated hitherto to impress me with an idea of my own utter weakness and helplessness, and to suggest an implicit, although bitterly reluctant submission, to his arbitrary will. But of late days I had given myself up entirely to wine, and its maddening influence upon my hereditary temper rendered me more and more impatient of control. I began to murmur, to hesitate, to resist. And was it only fancy which induced me to believe that, with the increase of my own firmness, that of my tormentor underwent a proportional diminution? Be this as it may, I now began to feel the inspiration of a burning hope, and at length nurtured in my secret thoughts a stern and desperate resolution that I would submit no longer to be enslaved. It was at Rome, during the carnival of 18 dot dot, that I attended a masquerade in the palazzo of the Neapolitan Duke de Broglio. I had indulged more freely than usual in the excesses of the wine-table, and now the suffocating atmosphere of the crowded rooms irritated me beyond endurance. The difficulty, too, of forcing my way through the mazes of company contributed not a little to the ruffling of my temper, for I was anxiously seeking, let me not say with what unworthy motive, the young, the gay, the beautiful wife of the aged and doting de Broglio. With a too unscrupulous confidence, she had previously communicated to me the secret of the costume in which she would be habited, and now, having caught a glimpse of her person, I was hurrying to make my way into her presence. At this moment I felt a light hand placed upon my shoulder, and that ever-remembered, low, damnable whisper within my ear. In an absolute frenzy of wrath, I turned at once upon him who had thus interrupted me, and seized him violently by the collar. He was attired, as I had expected, in a costume altogether similar to my own, wearing a Spanish cloak of blue velvet, begirt about the waist with a crimson belt sustaining a rapier. A mask of black silk entirely covered his face. "'Scoundrel!' I said in a voice husky with rage, while every syllable I uttered seemed as new fuel to my fury. "'Scoundrel! Impostor! Accursed villain! You shall not! You shall not dog me unto death! Follow me, or I stab you where you stand!' And I broke my way from the ballroom into a small antechamber adjoining, dragging him unresistingly with me as I went. Upon entering, I thrust him furiously from me. He staggered against the wall, while I closed the door with an oath, and commanded him to draw. He hesitated but for an instant, then with a slight sigh, drew in silence, and put himself upon his defense. The contest was brief indeed. 
I was frantic with every species of wild excitement, and felt within my single arm the energy and power of a multitude. In a few seconds I forced him by sheer strength against the wainscoting, and thus, getting him at mercy, plunged my sword with brute ferocity repeatedly through and through his bosom. At that instant some person tried the latch of the door. I hastened to prevent an intrusion, and then immediately returned to my dying antagonist. But what human language can adequately portray that astonishment, that horror which possessed me at the spectacle then presented to view? The brief moment in which I averted my eyes had been sufficient to produce, apparently, a material change in the arrangements at the upper or farther end of the room. A large mirror, so at first it seemed to me in my confusion, now stood where none had been perceptible before. And as I stepped up to it, in extremity of terror, mine own image, but with features all pale and dabbled in blood, advanced to meet me with a feeble and tottering gait. Thus it appeared, I say, but was not. It was my antagonist. It was Wilson, who then stood before me in the agonies of his dissolution. His mask and cloak lay where he had thrown them upon the floor. Not a thread in all his raiment, not a line in all the marked and singular lineaments of his face which was not, even in the most absolute identity, mine own. It was Wilson, but he spoke no longer in a whisper, and I could have fancied that I myself was speaking, while he said, You have conquered, and I yield. Yet henceforth art thou also dead, dead to the world, to heaven, and to hope. In me didst thou exist, and in my death see by this image which is thine own, how utterly thou hast murdered thyself. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Eppin. Hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Trish. We're going to talk about William Wilson, a tale by Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and I'm going to tell you where it was first published after I explain how I know where it was first published. So you will get differing reports on where it was first published. Um, there's a magazine called uh, Burton's Gentleman's Magazine in October 1839 that had this story. And then there is a book called uh, The Gift for 1840, uh, where it has been reported as being published. Now, um, you think, what does this matter, Jesse? Who cares? Well, I care. I, I hate it when I, I'm on a website and I, they claim to know where something was published and they're just wrong. It shows me that they don't care about details, which I care about a lot. So I investigated. I had already put up the gift for 1840 version. Um, I don't know which versions you guys have. I probably sent you the short version, uh, but the, the eight page from eight, October 1839, um, Burton's Gentleman magazine. But the other one's there, too, and there's one from Weird Tales, um, all up on the website, right? But it should be quite clear. The answer is, if you look at the um, October 1839 Burton's Gentleman's Magazine issue, it says, William Wilson, a tale by Edgar Allan Poe, or Edgar A. Poe, 
parentheses from the gift for 1840. The gift for 1840 would have been a, a book you buy as a Christmas gift to give to your family members for reading in 1840. So you would buy for Christmas 1839, hand it to them, say, Merry Christmas, or whatever, and then they would read it in the new year, just like you don't give a 2020 calendar for December 25th, 2020. You give a 2021 calendar. Does this make sense? Yeah. Okay, and he said, what the hell are you talking about? Why does this matter, Jesse? It matters a couple of reasons. One, because I said, uh, you know, if you get your facts wrong, um, you know, it shows a lack of doing your homework, and I care about that a lot. Um, but get this. It says from the gift from 1840, but what in the 1839 October, but which was actually published first? That's what I'm trying to answer. I can't, I still can't answer that. But what I can tell you is that Poe knew where he was writing it for. And that's answered in the very first sentence of the story. Poe's fucking genius. Listen to this. Let me call myself, for the present, William Wilson. Synonym for present? Gift. Ah, I see where you're going with that. He's going that way. He is so genius. Every fucking sentence in here is important. Listen to the next sentence. The fair page, now lying before me, need not be sullied with my real appellation. Now... There's one way to understand this, which is uh, the pale piece of paper on my desk or on the floor wherever I'm dying here need not be ruined by having my actual name written upon it. But we know how this story ends. And if you know the second meaning of page, or the third meaning of page perhaps, it's also a double. The fair page, as in the wan boy or young man, now lying before me, need not be sullied with my real appellation. He does this over and over in the story. Throughout the story, he is doubling things up so that they have second meanings. And it's genius. This is why, you know, he thinks this is one of his best stories, he said. Um... Uh, y'all come away with that feeling? It, it's it's tight. I mean, not in a in a good way. It's yes. one of his longest, by the way, right? This is one of his longest stories, and yet it's it's it is very tight. So yes, I I, I do I, I I mean I love I mean you talked about this being being great line by line. I mean the I mean have you taught this story to your students yet, Jesse? I I read it with my students this week, but no, I I. I because, haven't finished I mean, just, it before the, this just week. Just the amount of vocab you find in here—it's pretty good. Like ter- turpitude, sublunary, venerable, monitions, habiliments, paradox. I mean, this is this is like a masterclass, and like let's <laughs> let's use let's use excellent vocabulary to get exactly how I want to make the reader feel and see. And uh, also, my mom pointed—I uh, had her read it to me last night as well. <laughs> which was no small task. It was a big, it's a long story for her to read in one sitting. That's actually one of, um, 
that's why one of the reasons Lovecraft loves Poe so much is they agree on the philosophy of writing. Um, Poe wrote an essay about how to write, right? And uh, oh, a couple of them actually, and uh, they agree that the effect of reading the story is the most important thing. Like the reason you have to write short is so that it can be digested at one sitting, right? It's not the, it basically Poe was saying movies are good. Uh, feature films are good and TV series suck, <laughs> right? You can't, uh, do Netflix and chill with Poe. You have to be, <laughs> you, ha- you have to sit down, make it an occasion and that's it. Right. Um, so you know the language of this, mm-hmm. I, I had this somewhat interesting experience today as I, I download a PDF of, of William Wilson. Um, cause I get the, I got the audiobook version, but I didn't have a PDF. So I download it and here's how it begins. The version I downloaded, mm-hmm. let me call myself for the present William Wilson. That is not my real name. That name has already been the cause of horror and the anger of my family. Had not the winds carried my name with the loss of honor to the ends of the earth. And then an, that is somebody's right. adaptation of it. This was like a student version. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed later on there's like words like neighboring, thoughtful, shining, or bold. So this was a, a student version. And then mm-hmm. I had to go find the real one. But I didn't read the, the student version. But No, they, they dumb know. it down for kids. It seems it's uh, – I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> and the way it gets them reading Poe, I guess that's good, but it's not you're not reading Poe, right? That's right. It's a, you know, the, there's a book called a book series called No Fear Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um it's it has the Shakespeare and then the side by side with the with the translation, which I find quite useful, but I also mm-hmm. I also find they hide all the sex. <laughs> like whoever wrote it is super prudish. Uh, well, I guess it's not one person, but and it's like, wow, this is really not saying what it actually says there. And and it loses all the richness when you when you throw it out. Um but uh when I got to the bottom of the first page of the uh eighteen thirty-nine October Burton's Gentleman's magazine version, um the last paragraph, uh full paragraph on that page, I put a little uh notation on the side naming a very specific H.P. Lovecraft story. And because I'd never read this before, um, you know, I'd read the Wikipedia entry, I, I'd seen adaptations of it, but I'd never actually read the Poe before. I had no idea that a very specific H.P. Lovecraft story is a riff on this. Which story? That's what I'm saying. Is anybody else get this? Uh, Evan, you, you did... Well, if you give me the line, I might be able to... Well, let me read the section here. Um, uh, And then I'll tell you uh, to think about the ending. My earliest recollection of school life are connected with a large, rambling cottage-built and somewhat decayed building in a misty-looking village of England, where were a vast number of gigantic and gnarled trees, and where all the houses were excessively ancient and inordinately tall. In truth, it was a dr- it was a dreamlike and spirit soothing place. That venerable old town. At this moment, in fancy, I feel the refreshing chilliness of its deep shadowed out avenues. Inhale the fragrance of its thousand shrubberies and thrill anew with the undefinable delight at the deep hollow note 
of the church bell breaking each hour with sullen and sudden roar upon the stillness of the dusky atmosphere in which the old fretted gothic steeple lay embedded and asleep that's the paragraph i like i put a a little note on the side and then he actually repeats that um he he skips a paragraph here talking about something else and then he goes back and it says in the very next paragraph first paragraph on page 206 of that uh, Burton's Gentleman's Magazine. The house I have said was old, irregular, cottage built. Notice he's duplicating. He does that a lot. That's why this story is so long. There's a lot of duplication. The grounds were extensive and enormously high, and the solid brick walls topped with a bed of mortar and broken glass encompassed the whole. The prison-like rampart formed the limit of our domain. Notice he says our domain. Beyond it, we saw, but thrice a week, once every Saturday afternoon, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and then later on, um, probably not too far along, he talks about all the books. And then, Evan, think of the ending. What happens at the ending? He kills himself, right? And then yeah. he's, he sees himself in a mirror. Yeah, you're thinking the outsider. It's the outsider. Oh, yeah. I mean, the setting certainly feels like that. It's totally the outsider. And what's so funny is when, when I'm making my notes here, I'm drawing like the little things, and I notice like the fretted, the fretted Gothic steeple, and then he talks about the door in this school slash prison. I noted, I like, oh, it sounds like a prison. Even before I got to the word prison, and there's these, um, what's, what are they called? Uh, um, uh, rivets, right? And then the the wall of the school it has a mortar with broken glass on it, and then on top the gate there are spikes. This isn't a this isn't a uh, high school only or elementary school only. It's also a prison, or even better, it's a mental asylum. And yet, it's also a real place. You guys know um, the character gets yeah, his... like run by the the clergy. That's uh, who's also the principal of that the school, was common, like, right? Yeah, but and a doctor. Um, and there, well, is... there you have another doubling with the um, yep. the headmaster being the the also the preacher. He yeah, I've got uh, and yeah. the headmaster is cruel and bitter, and the preacher appears saintly. I'll read that section here. That's in that second paragraph. The prison-like rampart formed the limit of our domain. Beyond it we saw but thrice a week, once every Saturday afternoon, when we attended, when attended by two ushers, we were permitted to take brief walks in the, in a body. So good. (laughs) We were permitted to take walks in a body, though some of the neighboring, uh, through some of the neighboring fields, and twice, during Sunday, when we were par- we were paraded in the same formal manner to the morning and evening service of the one church of the village of this church, the principal of our school was pastor. With how deep a spirit of wonder and perplexity was I wont to regard him from our rem- our remote pew in the gallery, as with a step solemn and slow he ascended the pulpit. 
This reverend man, with countenance so demurely benign, with robes so glossy and so clerically flowing, with wig so minutely powdered, so rigid and so vast, could this be he who of late, with sour visage and in snuffy habiliments, administered furol in hand, the draconian laws of the academy? Oh, gigantic paradox, too utterly monstrous for solution. Um... Now, how is that a problem? It's only a problem for him <laughs> or for them. Uh, Furile, by the way, F-U-R-U-L-E, that's a, a ruler for hitting students. It's, oh, I did not know that. Yeah, right? <laughs> vocab word for me. Yep. And uh, so they, go, they have to go to church twice on Sundays. They have to go to church. I, I was thinking about... Um, I was show noting a recent show where we talked about um, uh, gender flipping stories, and uh, I was thinking in this one, it, it wouldn't really make that much a difference. But if you they them flip this story, <laughs> I think it kind of makes it either more confusing or completely clear, right? <laughs> because he calls himself him, but if he calls himself them, they. It, it probably would make it more confusing. Um, so this story is really interesting. It's super autobiographical. The main character, uh, William Wilson, who's not actually William Wilson, he tells us, um, did has a, his birthday stated. That's actually Poe's birthday, January 19th. He did go to this school. The name of the headmaster was the same as it actually was in the story. Or vice versa. Um, That's real creepy. It's super creepy. And then if you think of... I'm no way an expert on Poe's biographical information as I am with Lovecraft. Like, I know a lot about where Lovecraft traveled and how, you know, how he was educated, all that stuff, right? Read lots of biographies and letters and stuff like that. I'm not an expert on Poe in that same way. But I do know his stories pretty well, at least some of them. And Cask of Amontillado has a lot of similarities similarities to this. I'm starting to think a lot of his stuff is... I mean, I knew it all was very confessional anyways, but... Um, but now even more so after reading this. Right, and Casco and Montiato has a scene... Well, it starts in uh, in essentially Rome. Um, it doesn't say Rome, but he's... Uh, it's, it, it's, it's central Italy. It's in Carnival. Uh, it's a carnival, right? And they put on a mask and they go under... They, they're, one of them's wearing a mask or whatever. They go under the house and then he buries the guy alive. Think of how many times in Poe stories characters something, get buried alive. Get buried? Yes, a lot. And, and there's another story by Poe where he sneaks into a guy's bedroom and shines a light in his eye, just like in this story, Right? Is it the telltale? I think it's a telltale heart, right? He sneaks into a guy's room, ever so slowly opening the door, and the one blind eye in the guy's face stares back at him. The light sort of goes straight into his eye, and it's so creepily detailed. I I think Poe is telling us he knows he's a bad person and a difficult person. Uh and it sort of explains his end too, you know, like his mysterious death. Um, I don't. I mean, so many times when you're reading Poe, like in the Gold Bug, where he's got, he's got, he throws down, I don't know, in ciphers and stuff like that. 
Um, he's that was my first post story, as it so happens. It's a weird, it's, it's a weird one to start with, but like, I get it. Wow, secret code, it's cool. Yeah, I mean, he's like, inventing so much. Like that, it's like. He's 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 inventing so much, right? But it's because he's obsessed with these things. He's obsessed with burying people and <laughs> under the floorboards and uh, bricking them up. He's obsessed with uh, beautiful dead women, right? That's the one that isn't in here. Oh, Jesse just left us, so um, I guess we can uh, now uh, say whatever we want. Um, um, you know, I'm I'm still recording this. Um, my recorder's p- not broken well, yet. Well, did we just lose? Well, I I guess I I, I, <laughs> I was wondering did we lose Will too now? We no, I'm Will. here. Uh, uh, I don't. Know, speaking of doubling or, or in this story, you got signed out. I got signed out of Skype. I'm sorry oh, about back. that. Yeah, what happened? But I can't nail it down precisely, but I was wondering your opinion on this. Will it's like I get a sense there's a lot of anxiety about democracy going on huh. in the story, and I'm kind of coming at this thinking. Oh no, I, I feel that. Yeah, yeah. Because he he sets a lot of his stories in Europe and things, but he's still an American, right? And and I mean the problem with like if you're a a failure in Europe, I mean you have the hierarchical society. To kind of give you cover for your failure, right? If you're born a serf or a peasant, you know, that's your life. That's life. That's the hand you've been dealt, right? In America, this is all mythology, of course. You know, it certainly doesn't qualify for the aristocratic South and all that. But the ideology of America, even at this time, is like this. If you make it, it's because, you know, this equality kind of levels the playing field, right? At least for white men. Yeah, like a, a virtuous. Uh, yeah, like a, and a virtuous. Especially comment. early in the story, when he first meets this double, there's so much anxiety about this person being equal to me, and he's lost whatever authority he thought he had, right, with his voice and his ability to kind of dominate the others around him, or at least in his mind. Losses the that's van- washed his away. Advantage, yeah, yeah, and and I couldn't. I, I again, I, it's not something I can really nail down, but I got this feeling that. This, this is the heart of like the anxiety of of the white American male <laughs> in this period, like in this antebellum period, especially like in the North. You know, it's different dynamics in the South, which did have more of the kind of aristocratic elements in it. But, g- 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 given, but I don't know. G- given Poe's ties to like Maryland and whatnot, so this yeah. kind of mixing in with that whole Southern aristocracy versus Northern Yankeeism. Well, listen to this. My namesake alone of those who in school phraseology constitute our set presume to compete with me in the s- studies of the class, in the sports and broils in the playground, to refuse implicit belief in my assertions and submission to my will, indeed to interfere with my arbitrary dictation in any respect whatsoever. Presumed is an um, interesting word there. Presumed. It, if there is on earth a supreme and unqualified despotism, it's in the despotism of a mastermind in boyhood over the less energetic spirits of his companions. Wilson's rebellion to me was a source of great, the greatest embarrassment. The more so as, in spite of the bravado with which in public he made a point of treating him and his pretensions, I secretly felt that I feared him, and I could not help thinking the equality equality which he maintains so easily with myself as proof of his true superiority mm-hmm. that's not to be overcome cost me a perpetual struggle and then later on i think it's on the same page on my version he 
goes on. He kind of has a rant about the mob, the fear of the mob. So he thinks he's again, better than everybody. I really, it's it's kind of. It seems it's like in the deep backdrop, but I got a feel. I just got a vibe of anxiety over democracy being reflected here. Did you? I, um, I think there's. You all, you all know about uh, Poe's. Uh, so you're talking about. W- the Civil War upcoming, right? You know, he went to not, not, West well, Point, right? Partial, but. He went to West Point, and one of the things that uh, he got kicked out, basically, um, one of the things, or left, I, I, I don't know the details that well, obviously, but um, uh, there's a famous incident that happened, a swimming contest, where the boys would swim out to a certain point, and he would never let anybody beat him at anything. And so he's, he swims, he swam out so far, he almost drowned. Um, and he probably got kicked out for gambling. Um, and so the incident that happens in Eaton in this story is really an incident that happened to him somehow. And he was super, if you think of like the way he's critical of other writers, um, he, he knows he's smarter than everybody else. And the only person he's competing with is really him, right? There's such a weird angle going on here with this being the other William Wilson being sort of his own spur to himself. And yet it's also uh, the voice of restraint. Like, maybe I shouldn't be so mean to the people I'm critiquing. Tomahawk Poe is what they called him, right? Because he was savage in his reviews, and he he made enemies everywhere he went, right? Because he's not being polite and politic. And he's the only person he can compete with is himself, he thinks. And yet that voice seems to be the voice not of Poe himself, but, or, you know, the other William Wilson. Seems to be, it's almost like, um, this is all pre-Freud, uh, right? But it's the superego saying, don't do that. Don't act that way. Restrain yourself. If you cheated this person with your advanced skill, that's wrong. He outs himself, and he hates that. So he tries to flee and goes everywhere he goes, looking for a place that's better, right? But all ultimately, always, he can't his, escape himself. His schemes catch up with him. I mean, I mean the the whole th- the whole thing with uh, his double coming and revealing his. Uh, his his gambling scheme, which reminds me of, as I was telling you just before this podcast, the 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 Caravaggio painting, the card shocks, where you have the where you have the three players, and the one player has the has the fake card right behind the head that everyone can see, mm. except for except for except for the mark. Everyone knows it's there, except for our poor mark. We, the viewer of the painting, can see it, just as we we the reader can see that he's. He's going to fake this, and it's only when the when the doppelganger, quote unquote, comes out, comes and says, "Look, look what he's done." That it's all revealed to all what's going on. Mm-hmm. And he blames his moral decline on the the doppelganger appearing in his life, right? Like once, yeah, that's a weird. He's confronted weird once he's confronted with this equality, then he has no choice but to become a con, con artist, essentially. He, he, um, which is another very American thing. I mean, he does that over and over in his stories. If you think about the black cat, right? That's a story about a guy saying, 
I, I am responsible. And actually the way it ends, um, I don't know, maybe Will has heard the reading short and deep we did on this. Uh, Eric was really good at teasing some stuff out of there, but the way it ends, it's, it's clear that he's actually, he's, it's the night before the execution for his murder, right? Or the murders that he did. And the way that it ends, he's actually talking the same way in here. It's, it's that I take full responsibility is what he says, but he actually says it was someone else. <laughs> I take full responsibility, but I'm blameless. And that isn't, move. Isn't that a trope? Say again? Isn't, isn't that, that a trope? trope? I guess. I mean, it's a real phenomenon, right? With, uh, tw- tweeted apologies and you know people going on the news to apologize and then not apo- not apologize but the thing is is he elicits throughout this i mean he says right near the beginning there um uh was it pity or sympathy no not pity not pity <laughs> oh here it is steeped in misery as i am misery alas only too real i shall be pardoned for seeking relief however slight and temporary in the weakness of a few rambling details Utterly trivial, ridiculous in themselves, right? Um, and then he says, I, to my, uh, I recognize that the first ambiguous monitions, and that word is related to the word admonition, right? So everybody should know that one, of the destiny which afterwards so fully overshadowed me. So it wasn't my, my problem in the, in the black cat, he blames it on drink, right? And it, it actually is funny because it's, it's a, he, the main character advocates teetotalism, right? The abs, abstinence from alcohol. And he blames the murder of his wife, the burning down of his house, the killing of his cat, all on drink. Yeah, but who's I'm lifting drink. that bottle? Rum. Right? Yeah. Who's lifting that <laughs> bottle? It's him. Yeah, and, and vino veritas, you know, <laughs> if you do bad things because you, you drink, you are just repressing the bad stuff uh, before. Right, right. It's it's something that, that is in you that's being let loose. Yeah. And you choose to let it loose. Right. right. Now, we could also say uh, nobody, everybody's a victim of their own brain, blah, blah, blah. And that is also true. And Poe knows that. <laughs> And that's where the line is in this story, right? Is that he is being confronted at the end by this person he hates, who is his own competitor, and it's him. And in killing himself, he's actually doing justice. Because if you read between the lines in here, he is, he tells us he's a bad person, but he also says, I'm not going to tell you all the bad things I did. But he implies he implies them, right? Um, and now I watched that. Um, I know I didn't get to you guys in time, um, but there's a 1968 movie called Spirits of the Dead. It's a what do they call a tripart movie. It's with three short films, basically. And yeah, f- I watched that this oh, morning. Oh, did you? Okay, at good. Least the, that that part of it. yeah. Um, and that has to make explicit, right? In an adaptation, you have to show stuff. <laughs> um, they seem to set it in Austria or Italy or something like that. And uh, it really shows the debauchery and the cruelty. And um, and it makes also more clear that the role that William Wilson plays, and it's clear in the story, but it makes it more you know concrete, 
to see that the role that the other William Wilson plays is that of the super, the super ego, the worry, the niggle in the back of your head. What am I? I think what I'm doing is wrong. And the way to escape that is generally to party on and to drink more and to do more drugs and not think about what your mom would think about this. Not to think about what your dad would think about this. Not to think what your pastor would think about this. Right? And that horror of, you know, I'm doing wrong. He's driven by his own stuff. It wasn't his parents who, you know, they say he was untamed. I believe it. (laughs) I believe Poe was untamed. Untamable. His, uh, his middle name, you know, Alan, that's taken from his adopted family because his, both his parents were actors and they both died when he was young. He was adopted by a wealthy family. And the guy, I think his name is John Allen, um, who adopted him eventually gave up on him. He just said, I can't deal with you anymore. Um, and that, that, um, you know, he, 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 he was in wealth just like our character here, and then was cut off because he was just too reckless. He would have been, he's like Philip K. Dick. You don't want to have him as a house guest. Really good writer. <laughs> don't want him to have him as a house guest. H.P. Lovecraft comes over, you're going to have a great time. <laughs> he's not going to eat you out of house and home. He's not going to do drugs all night. He will take every piece of paper in your house, but he's <laughs> not going to, he's going to spend all his time on the porch writing letters, but he's not going to fuck up your, your house or, you know, sell everything in your house for drugs or whatever. Uh, Poe is quite a different person than Lovecraft, but they both had that spark of, I've got something here. I've really got something here. And this is such a weird story because it doesn't feel like a horror story, but it is in essence. Um, Evan, did you know? I don't know what you, what you mean by it doesn't feel like a horror story. There's, well, there's dread through pretty much the whole thing. There is dread. There is dread. There, there's no jump scares, but that's not all that horror is. That's true. There, there's, uh, I've not read it, but there's a Stephen King novel that was recently adapted to HBO called The Outsider. You guys know about this? Yeah, Heard of it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I haven't read it. Have you read it, Evan, did you say? Yeah, I read it. I was watching it, and then... Like the Chinese streaming sites took it off. Okay. And I couldn't finish it. I but, never got back to it, but. but I heard, um, that William Wilson is the inspiration for The Outsider. Is it got a. Yeah, I saw the tweet you sent me on that. Did I? I don't know. Okay. That struck me. The thing is, King is certainly influenced by this story in the sense that he uses doubles all the time. Uh, it's all throughout the Dark Tower, but even in other stories, there's always yeah, these twitters, Wikipedia even across novels. Said, I think Wikipedia said that King admitted the influence of this story. Yeah, in- but it's it's just a straight up monster on the outsider. That's that <laughs> it's all it's a monster that doubles as someone to make a really interesting like He's making procedural. it more explicit, right? <laughs> so the police procedural he he was he's interested in police procedurals now for whatever reason. Uh, King, mm-hmm. um, and and so the problem is you have evidence clearly pointing out that this guy did it, 
but you also have an airtight alibi, right? And it's just because it's a, but it's a straight up monster. It's not like a a reflection on who he is. He says that in other stories, but I think there's actually if I if I sit down and think about it, I think there's a lot of better stories that deal with this doubling and the the two sides of a personality, the dark half. Yes. Hmm. Which is example. Uh, or the other one, the one in uh, Four Past Midnight with the writer. The, the, there's a connection one? to the dark half the secret uh, window. with uh, Westlake and Richard Stark being the same person, right? Yeah, the dark half, yeah. And then there's a, a, a story about the... They made that into a movie, a Johnny Depp movie. Yes. And John Turturro, the secret window. Right. Or the, that's the name of the movie. I think this novella might be a little bit longer. But it's just, you know, the same thing. Um, so I think he does this plot better than other stories of the Outsiders. I, I, Interesting. I I, I, but, I, he, you know, the Twinner, the Twinner is running throughout so much of, of, of King's work, though. He's obsessed with the idea. So that's true. Well, what did you think of all this, Will? thought it was a pretty good story um uh you know uh i think one place where i struggle with uh what we might call weird fiction is that it, it really does take a lot of study to to get through it um, mm. um before the show started jesse kind of called me out and saying that i i do enjoy reading trash <laughs> like so like things that are simple i actually do like uh-huh. um and this stuff is uh, a little bit more challenging but maybe a little bit more rewarding um in terms of nutritious uh, nutritious that might be a way to put it um uh i don't know if there's a poison pill here in the in the nutrition but uh it's really good well it's like um, it's, it's like nutrition for for trees not nutrition for humans because it it makes stuff grow but if you eat that fertilizer it'll make you sick also so so am i am i growing into being an ant here uh yes uh, yes i think um, that's what it is you're growing mm, yeah. room room <laughs> tall <laughs> but but in terms of critical responses to this story um i um uh i think uh i think evan was hinting at something interesting earlier when he's talking about uh anxiety about uh, equality here or at least like there's an interesting theme there to think about um mm-hmm. uh, i want to kind of deepen uh, well evan didn't really make a point but i think we can like deepen this like uh inquiry a little bit if we think about uh so um when uh he uh you know gets undermined and has to become a criminal um what's the what's the uh con that he's trying to do? He's trying to undermine somebody who's a noble. He's this guy who's a mm-hmm. commoner and he's trying to undermine a a member of the nobility here. He's going to ruin this person. Um and that's the uh that's the sin that sends him uh irrevocably down his his life of crime, right? So I don't know if there's really something there or not, but uh, I think it's he certainly... thinks of himself as a noble, though. That's the other thing, right? He's he says my name is not uh, it's plebeian, which is what is annoying to me, right? Um, but it's also not William Wilson. Yeah, 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 well, he says I I had always felt aversion to my uncourtly patronymic, and it's very common, if not plebeian. Prenomenon, which yes, first so and last means. name, right? Prenomen yeah. is the first name in. Patronomic is the father's name, but William Wilson is William, son of William, right? Wilson, just like my William, name, Willis. William the Conqueror. 
it would be like the person in mind to like uh right somebody oppose heritage uh but my my literal last name willis is a derivation of william right it's a it's a sort of northern england scottish version of gilliam right that has been turned into a last name has happened and down the centuries people are naming their kids after you know that's why those british surnames are also weird for the lords like uh it, it, what was um what is morton drax <laughs> uh you know lord dunsany's real name <laughs> is like ridiculous right because it's all about tracing that lineage now here we're cut off from his lineage completely well I, he sounds like a self-hating commoner to me he is i, I mean i know we we have an yeah. unreliable narrator here, but that's why uh, he adopts the Allen middle name. His parents were actors. Oh my God. Right. Nothing is lower in, you know, if you think about uh, who shot Lincoln, <laughs> that guy, that actor. Oh my God. Right. This well, is not well, the way we think of actors today as, you know, they can be president or whatever. Um, we yeah, think of. I mean- we I think of was, them was back like, then. It was a condemnable. It was a. It was like being a whore. It was yeah, not a. Well, yeah. Especially in Roman times. I mean, I go back to the Roman thing because of that whole phrase will be in Nomen. Yeah, but yeah, actors were kind of low with the low, and one of the reasons why people like Nero were despised is because he wanted to act. Like mm-hmm. the Roman emperor doesn't act. What the heck is that? They're they're nobodies. They're they're not much better than slaves. So yes. Yeah, so, it's not like today where you have Hollywood. He has this double, double sort of reality for himself, right? He hates himself and he thinks he's the best. And that's why he kills himself. Poe died in 1849. So the Civil War. Oh, yeah. Don't come into it. (laughs) Well, actually, that, that, that's my point is, uh, you know, like if uh, I asked this question a long time ago, I don't know if it was on the podcast or not, but um, everybody agreed with me at the time. If Poe was going to fight in the Civil War, had he survived, which side would he be on? And everybody knows the answer, right? Yeah, he would have fought for the South. No Correct. And there's no real question in our mind about that, is there? No. Uh, why is that? He could have been on either side. It's well, because I mean, of his personality. Of a reactionary, right? He's like, a, his personality is such that he would have chosen the wrong side. <laughs> Um, not that there was, I, you know, it's not good to fight in wars, but, um, he, if you think about what's missing from almost every Poe story, it's black people, right? The only story that they ever appear in, as far as I know, is the gold bug. That's the one story. He's, he's above it, right? In a way that Lovecraft can't be above it. His Lovecraft is brought low in a similar way, you know, financially, but uh, Lovecraft's growing up at a time where this is post-Civil War, antebellum, right? Or uh, post-bellum or whatever. And so he's he's reacting to it, whereas Poe is, oh, he's above all this. This isn't even a question. And that's really weird because we don't think of Poe as being racist. But, of course, he's, he's classic. He's classist in a way that's basically saying, I'm better than everybody else. <laughs> and so when he says in the very second sentence, is it? He says, uh, a third sentence. This has been already too much of an object of scorn for the horror, for the detestation of my race. He's a race of two people who's actually one person. 
right? He talks about his parents in here as being unable to control him because they were similar to him. But also he was more powerful than them. And so they send him off, to, they bundle him off to school, right? Which is literally a prison. <laughs> and it's, like, it's like we're a school. And, uh, and, yeah, and that's why in that adaptation, Trish, they make him a military officer. And that film is that Louis Mal short film inside of Spirits of the Dead. It's freaky, right? I thought that was a really good adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, 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 much more faithful um, than the 1913 film that I watched. Uh, and it had some interesting artistic choices too. I thought it was well worth watching. It, it is worth watching. And I, I've, I fast forwarded through the Metkin Stern story, which is a, a post story that still intimidates me. Took me a lot I didn't of courage have time to watch the other two. Took, took me a lot of courage to work my, my uh, uh, time to work my courage up to read William Wilson. Cause I'd read so much about it, you know, and it seems like it's it's a intimidating length for Poe, but that uh, Met Metzgen Stern, the one about the woman and the horse and the burning house, I like. I think that the I think there are. I'm just thinking everything he writes is autobiographical now because I'd never experienced this story, I'd never seen Poe as wholly autobiographical. I knew you know his dead wife and you know his courting, and you know you see that in the poems and and the stories, but. Um, he was a bad, bad dude, <laughs> a bad, bad, wonderful, amazing star, and he's conflicted over it. Uh, that Washington Irving uh, praise that he I tweeted about and that Washington Irving said about this story, um, it was kind of um your little story. Oh, that would have rankled Poe. Oh, he would have been so mad. Because Washington Irving had success, you know, before Poe did. And uh, Poe was trying to be successful in a way that, you know, he, he was one of the very few writers who was really almost making a living other than, you know, the famous Washington Irving. Um, okay, to change the subject slightly, um, Evan, uh, yeah. what's the opening line of Moby Dick? I was just looking at Moby Dick for a quote. Yep, I think it's is is doubled is 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 reflected here. Uh, call me Ishmael. Let me or call myself the, for the present. William Wilson. Right, he's not saying my name's Ishmael. He's saying call me yeah. Ishmael. Let me call myself Ishmael. Let me call myself William Wilson. Uh, we know that that uh, Melville read Poe, right? Do we know that? Pretty sure we do. Well, he. Yeah, and uh, it's 1850. I think is is um, Moby Dick, right? So I, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, the 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 fact that I keep thinking about how Ishmael just completely disappears for a lot of the book, um, into the story, and it just becomes something else as part of it. But um, he also, uh, I'm pretty sure Melville read uh, Poe's one novel. Uh, narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. Isn't it even mentioned? In, maybe it's in the preview. I can't remember. Which was what we've done. We've done that on the podcast. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you were saying, like, this is long as a post-star. So I was thinking, about what about Pym? But that's a novel. That's a novel. That's his only novel. 
but I think this might be the second. This might be the second longest thing he wrote. Almost everything he write, writes is, you know, under forty minutes to read. This is just about an hour because he's got that philosophy of composition. How to? It, it, he's so weird. Like he he wrote an essay on the philosophy of furniture, right? Just a weird thing to write about. He says, this is how you have the perfect room. And he's got all these ideas. And he's just sparking full energy to get them all down. It's like, well, yeah, that's cool. But he he didn't write for that long a period of time before he's basically dead. So this is a very intimidating story. It's got character it's a singular it's got a character just one characters but really <laughs> just right. one it's got it's got vocab up the yin yang it's it's a tragic it's a tragedy it's a dark tragedy of horror as this guy keeps sinking into his worst impulses and paying the price for it eventually the, the final price for it by the by the end so um it's it's not it's not a fun story. I mean, not that much much a Poe is. It's not a fun story to read on a happy day. This is this is kind of almost like the radio. Like okay, it's a it's a rainy night. And you can read this as as the storm's brewing and imagining that there's someone else in the room and your <laughs> your secret double, your dark half, but it's really just yourself that you're kind of trapped with inside as as the storm rages outside in this gothic mansion that you're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice the the, he gets some very precise things going on. This is, I'm not sure where it is in the, I'm just looked it up in the e-text, but my, when my mom is reading it to me, um, she says, nothing's happened yet. <laughs> Quite deep into the story. I said, that's because there's only one character, right? <laughs> Which is like, he's basically describing how everything feels and, and how everything is. But one of the things he, he does, which is so weird, is describe the architecture very, in, in incredible detail. This is a very, uh, it's Lovecraft's getting all, you know, horny <laughs> hearing, <laughs> hearing about the architecture. Um, let me just read a couple of paragraphs here and I want to point out something very interesting. But the house, how quaint an old building was this. To me, how veritably a palace of enchantment. There was really no end to its windings, to its incomprehensible subdivisions. It was impossible at any given time to say with certainty upon which of its two stories one happened to be. Uh, From each room to every other, there was sure to be found three or four steps either in ascent or descent. Thus... Then the lateral branches were innumerable, inconceivable. This is he's there's a doubling up of mm-hmm. his language again, and so we're turning in upon themselves that our most exact ideas in regard to the whole mansion were not very far from those which we pondered upon infinity. During the five years of my residence here, I was never able to ascertain with precision in what more remote locality lay the little sleeping apartment assigned to myself and some eighteen or twenty other scholars. It's I'm going to pause you there. Yeah, I'm going to stop here. Eighteen. Or 20 other scholars. Not an accident. 20 minus 18, 2. Is 2. Now, next paragraph. The schoolroom was the largest in the house. I could not help thinking the world. I could not help thinking in the world. It was very long, narrow, and dismally low with pointed gothic windows and a ceiling of oak. In a remote and terror-inspiring angle was a square enclosure of 8 or 10 feet. 10 feet. 
comprising the sanctum during uh, during hours of our principal. Then uh, the principal, the Reverend Dr. Bransby. It was a solid structure with a massy door sooner than... Okay, blah, 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 blah. So this idea of him always getting it wrong by two, right? Leaving it room for two rather than 19 or 20, eight, eight, nine or 10. It's always eight or 10, 18 or 20. It's always two. And when whenever he talks about uh, what we did, we think, oh, he's talking about the, the, the school children, right? The group. But no, he's all by himself. He doesn't have any friends, right? That hour is we, that we walked at, in a body. Dude, he is doing exact, like he's telegraphing it the whole time, right? It isn't, it, it isn't, um, like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where we're supposed to be surprised at the end, right? We know pretty much, I think, from the beginning. I, mean, I did because I read the Wikipedia entry. I'd heard this as a doppelganger story, but I knew from the beginning what he was doing. But the question of wh what does it all mean, I'm still not sure. I, I, Other than what I've said, I'm still not sure what this is about, other than it's a confessional of, you know, this bifurcated mind. I was thinking, do I, I didn't quite oh. see it that way. Okay. Um, the other students, and there were other students there in were. the school, uh, the upperclassmen uh, kind of made fun of the two William Wilsons and started rumors about them actually being brothers and other darker secrets that uh, Poe does not explicate to us. Um, but uh, so my interpretation was that there was an, a real other William Wilson, but when... <laughs> When our William, when the narrator crept, crept up on him in the night, he and was shocked to see his own face. I think that was when his mind broke and created the, you know, I don't think the other guy suddenly looked like narrator William Wilson. I think that was his mind. And that then at that point, they never saw each other again. And all the pursuit and everything after that was narrator william wilson's own mind so well, i think there was a real other well let me just let me that just, drove him insane let me put it uh by quoting poe this is a little farther down um uh the words were venom in my ears and when upon the day of my arrival a second william wilson came in also into the academy i felt angry with him for be bearing the name and doubly disgusted with the name because a stranger bore it who would be the cause of its twofold repetition? Who would be constantly in my presence? And whose concerns uh, in the ordinary routine of school business must inevitably, on account of the detestable coincidence, be often confounded with my own? That he comes on the same day. Okay, they all come to the school at the same day. Doesn't sound like that's big a surprise. William Wilson is kind of a common name. I get it. Um, they have the same birthday. Well, that makes sense because, you know, they're in the same class year and there's only 365 days in the year. It's very possible, right? Um, <laughs> but no, <laughs> there isn't a second William Wilson. I, I'm convinced that this is the bifurcated mind thing. This isn't even like I was thinking, do I need to watch that episode of Next Generation where Riker has a transporter accident and finds out that eight what? years later there's a... A yeah, Riker, a Tom Riker, class. down on the planet, who's had different motivations, and you know, like, 
No, I don't think I need to watch that one because that one, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, it's the same, similar situation. But that's, that, but, but that's not even the, the, the next generation episodes you think of. There's a, it, there's it, a I, Kirk episode as well with no, he's broken no, no, into but two. Not even that one either. Um, I can't remember the name of it offhand. I have to Google it, but there's the one where he winds up in an insane asylum and starts really wondering who he is and what he is and hallucinating his own position because he's been basically been kidnapped by these aliens and he gets gets wrapped up with his memories of a play about identity it's a hmm. really strange episode i haven't come and across I remember that one. before the end of this podcast i'll let you know but that's the one i was thinking of as i was listening and not not tom Riker because that's straightforward yes there are two rikers but but you think about the relationship they have right so one one uh is one is a lieutenant and one's a commander, right? One has been stuck sort of in a place and the, so they're, they're actually in competition. And if you recall in deep space nine, Tom Riker comes back and he's sort of making his own path in life. He is the William Wilson of the narration, right? He is the William Wilson who's frustrated with the other Riker. And it's, it's like being born a twin. You are obviously going to be compared, but it's worse because a moral failing on one person's part is reflected on the other if they're actually identical in character, right? So if you committed a crime and you're me in every way except for bodily, then I'm capable of committing that crime and the the aspersions cast upon me in the same way that if you commit a crime uh, and it's public, that shame goes on your whole family, your brothers, your sisters, your mom, your sister, you know, your mom, your dad, everybody is shamed. But if you have an identical twin who's a child molester or you have an identical twin who's a murderer, then those things are going to make you all the more upset than if it's some person who's not connected to you. The fact that he has the same name, that he's exactly com- compatible, that f- he keeps getting kicked out and this guy shows up everywhere he goes. There's definitely, <laughs> it's possible that there was a, a mental break, right? But I think there's a series of mental breaks, like just continuous. A cascade. Or- <laughs> I don't know. And, and, and the I- next generation episode I was thinking of is called Frame of Mind. Okay. What, what so, season so, yeah. is that in? Um, it is in season, it's in season six. Okay. I'm a couple of so, seasons so, away. So which is, which, which is pretty high, pretty high in the, in the next generation is at, at its, at its great. So basically, yeah, he, it's a, it's a play about identity and insanity. And it turns out that he's using his memories of this play because he's actually been kidnapped and he's being psychologically tortured as far as who he is and what he is, is, in question throughout a lot of the episode. It's a really good episode. If, if, I, had, if I didn't think I, I had a, I didn't think about it until I was listening to this. It's like, that reminds me of a next generation thing, but mm. I didn't look it up. I didn't do my homework until <laughs> now where it's like, Oh yes. Well, I didn't remind. do my homework either. <laughs> if we're, if we're talking, if we're talking about, uh, Oh, did you find that quote you were looking for? Well, I, I got to put this in the context because, I still, my gut tells me that there's something here about democracy and anxiety about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you take now, obviously it's all bullshit. But yes. if you take seriously the language of equality and democracy, as it was understood maybe in the antebellum period, right? 
if one man is more successful than than me, I have only myself to blame for that, right? He must be doing something better. He's smarter, harder working, right, or whatever. That there must be something different in like an almost a moral sense between them. And here's what Poe writes. Um, where is it? Um, Yet, at this distant day, let me do him the simple justice to acknowledge that I can recall no occasion when the suggestions of my rival were on the side of those errors or follies so unusual or so usual to his immature age and seemingly inexperience. That his moral sense, at least, if not his general talents and worldly wisdom, was far keener than my own, and that I might today had a, I might have today have been a better and thus happier man had I less frequent had I less frequently rejected the counsels embodied in those meaning meaning whispers, which I then but too cordially hated and too bitterly despised. And I can't help but think how Americans are obsessed with self help books. <laughs> it, it's the super ego there. Right? That's the super ego. He is totally saying but, but here's, what I'm action my actions yeah. are offensive to me. Right? And the whispering my, my ear is like William Wilson. What no, have you my, done? My point is, in, a, in an aristocratic society, in a society not plagued with this ideology of equality, if I'm a failure, if I'm a moral failure, that's hardwired into my social status. Mm-hmm. Right? If I'm in if I'm in medieval Europe and I'm a peasant, that's like that's like all part of God's plan, right? It's it's my social status, my moral outcome, what's expected of me, it's all already laid out. I'll die a peasant. I'll be born a peasant, right? My kids will be peasants. But once you kind of presume, and of course this is just something people say, but people took it seriously enough. Once you say we're equal, then how do you differentiate why someone is successful? Someone else is because I'm worse. If I if I'm a failure, it's because mm. I did something wrong. In this case, he's highlighting moral, the moral superiority of the other, the doppelganger. But here's what Melville writes, and I think one of the most fascinating passages of Moby Dick which I'm surprised it took me so long to find because it's one of my favorite. He writes, uh, this is in the Town Ho story, part of Hopi Dick. Now, as you well know, it is not seldom the case in this conventional world of ours, watery, watery or otherwise, that when a person placed in command over his fellow man finds one of them to be significantly his superior in general pride of manhood, straight away against that man he conceives an unconquerable dislike and bitterness and if he had a chance, he'll pull down and pulverize that subaltern's tower and make a little heap of dust of it. Yep. So this is kind of the same problem. When you meet someone who is your superior in this moral dimension, right? Mm-hmm. They're both talking about someone who's superior in a moral sense. And how do you respond to it? Both these characters have no choice. The, 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 kind of, the one Melville's talking about, the, the superior officer who finds the... The, the 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 sea man, you know, his superior morally and in manliness, he must smash him, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what William Wilson must do to his doppelganger yep. eventually. So that's that's how you deal with uh, in in a in a situation of equality. What can you do except smash that? Because you can't, you can never make up that gap. I guess I don't know. I guess I'm kind of no, no. It's there. I, clear, I, I, but I, it's the. I think that's what the, I'm saying. It's not for me. It's not all internal. I think there's a broader 
anxiety about equality. And I, I think that's why placing this in England, I think it's in you know, England somewhere. Yeah, it's in, it's it's in, in outside London um, at the beginning anyways. Uh, Oxford, yeah. he goes to Eton, right? I mean, maybe, let's go, let's, maybe America's the doppelganger. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Going deep there, Evan. Okay. <laughs> I agree. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, I, I can't help but think of all the, all the people who, who tweet <laughs> and say things like that are utterly ridiculous and they're unconscious or shameless. And not, I'm not meaning like shameless, like they literally do not see it as a conflict um, because of striking out in kind of moral rage at how dare you be more moral superior than me by having consistency and caring about principles. And the thing is, is that that's super real, right? What Melville's pointing to. And here, I I think Poe is, it's so weird because he's a bad guy. Like he's, he's a, he's acting improperly. He acts, he's courting people's wives and he's, um, he's, he's kind of a bad dude. He's using his powers for evil, but he also is so smart and he can see sort of from the outside how it is and how he's acting, but he can't help himself. And so when he kills himself at the end of the story, it's like justice. Right. And, and, and that's why that short film in the, the Louis Mel, um, short film version of William Wilson in, uh, Spirit of, uh, Spirit, what's it called? Spirits of, uh, the Dead, 1968 movie. Um, it, it shows like how morally horrible this guy is. He's basically a rapist and power monger, you know, evil torturer. Um, and only his own sort of um, repugnance of what he is can take him down. That's the, you know, like it is the justice is seeing himself murdered, right? Murdering himself. Ultimately, his only, his only break is himself. Yeah. And, 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 and with that, while he's doing it, he's even morally lording it over this stupid priest, right? In the movie adaptation, it's all a confession. And that, that again, that makes me think of Cask of Amontillado, which people don't seem to be obsessed about the end. I did a reading short and deep on this one as well. And I'm like, it's so important. Even Eric didn't think it was so important, but. I think it's so important that he says near the beginning of the story, you who know my, the nature of my soul, right? And at the end, we find out that the events of the Cask of Amontillado uh, took place 50 years before. So he's on his deathbed confessing and laughing at the fact that now that he's confessed, he goes, gets to go to heaven, right? Even though he lived a perfectly good life after having murdering people, murdered a dude, gotten away with it gotten his cold revenge for some slight, which we never have heard of. This Montresor guy is equivalent to William Wilson, right? We don't know anything about him other than he likes to drink and that he fancies himself a <laughs> a connoisseur of alcohol. Well, that's that's also our hero in a certain sense, right? He just, he needs to brick him up. It's super interesting psychologically. Like he's, he's laying a lot of groundwork for 
later stuff. And it feels like this story could be paired up with like the yellow wallpaper and be, um, I mean, that one seems a lot more simple, right? Uh, the Charlotte Perkins Gilman story, the yellow wallpaper, y'all familiar with that one? That's a great story. And it is not simple. Fight me. Uh, well, no, in comparison to this, I think it is simple. Like, <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay. But, well. um, <laughs> uh, just going back to Amontillado a mm-hmm. second, um, uh, Montresor is clearly wrong because, at least in, in theology of confession, you have to not only tell someone, uh, but have repentance. And he had no repentance, so... Well, he's he's working the legalistic version of it rather than you know having true repentance in his heart. He doesn't care about that. The important part was that he got away with it, right? And then he he gets. I mean, he's relishing the telling of the story, just in the same way that the narrator, the black cat, is like he's giving you details about how he killed and murdered and strangled and cut out the eye. And all those things is because he's he's like a fucking psychopath who's he's like, hey, 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 let me tell you what I did next and the bad thing that I did. I'm such a bad person. Like, he's really creepy. Right. William Wilson here is not a good. Uh, the non. Well, they're both bad <laughs> because they're the same guy, but the, he's a he's a bad dude. It's not it, it, this is justice done kind of. Because, yeah, I don't care if this Lord loses his house, right? Lord Dun- Glenn Dinning or whatever. I don't care about that. What I care about is, like, um, him being cruel. And that cruelty is, it, it, he says, I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm not going to tell you about it. Um, and that's in part, I think, to shield us from the horror of what he actually did, Right. So that we feel that sympathy and pity for him. But no, not pity. Sympathy. That's what he wants. He wants sympathy. Not pity. Not pity. Because he's better than you. And that's that's amazing. He did all that in this story. He's, he's making us feel all sorts of things. And then, oh, we're kind of glad he's dead. I, at least that's the way I feel about it. We've got a, a quote at the beginning. Uh... I don't know what it means in the fact that it's not a real quote. There's lots of speculation saying that it's um, from uh, from a book, but not that story. That's but another story in the same book. It's like a play or something. But what say of it? What say of conscience grim? This that specter in my path. So he's basically making up that quote or quoting it from memory and getting it wrong. Um. Uh, I think that he doesn't answer those questions. I think he doesn't answer those questions. What say of it? What say of conscience grim? That specter in my path. And there's a quote. Yeah. So it's like the, the the last words of the thing almost feels like a quote from something else too. Mm. I mean, you have conquered and I yield yet henceforth art thou also dead, dead to the world and its hopes in me. Didst thou exist and in, and in my death see by this image, which is thine own, how utterly thou hast murdered thyself. That feels like it's he's taking that from something else. He's well, nothing that. It, it, it's also the echo of the end of the outsider, right? Where he mm-hmm. he sees himself in the that glass again. 
uh, after he finishes riding the night winds and such. <laughs> it's mask. <laughs> uh, it's, um, it, it, yeah, so it, it is horror, but it's not uh, a horror with a monster, like a physically embodied creature. It's horror of moral moral horror, which, I yeah, it is a kind of horror, but it's not what most people think of, I think, when they think of horror. A lot of a lot of things should be classified as horror, probably. Romance novels, yeah, I, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, we can have a whole podcast on how do you classify horror? What are the what, what makes horror? What is, when is a story not horror? That's all. That's a whole different podcast, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you, you, you should, we should put that on on our thing on our uh, little spreadsheet. As that would not. Episode. That would be a very. We'd have to narrow it quite a bit. Um, you know. Like It'd be the, an interesting discussion. Somebody, somebody was saying uh, cosmic horror should be replaced. The word Lovecraftian yep. should be replaced with the word cosmic horror because that's how they were using it back then. It's a very modern term, um, but I, I think almost n- nobody who says they're practicing cosmic horror is actually doing it because almost none of it's about you know space or the size of the universe. It seems to be more like just. Cthulhu monsters or whatever, which is, I think, you know, it's a way of embodying it, but that's not really the same thing. Because when you think about how, I mean, uh, Poe wrote about all this, right? He wrote about what, and, and I guess, uh, so did King in his on writing book about, you know, gross outs versus, uh, terrorize versus horrify. All that it's stuff. Dance macabre. Is it dance macabre? Okay. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Horrify. Terrify. No. Yeah, I think horrify is the top. And the gross out is the bottom. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a fan of the gross out. Although I I understand its power. I I. It's just like yeah. Like a good bad death is I think pretty powerful. A good bad death. Sure. Can you give me sure an example? You're just not sensitive enough. Lovecraft would say not sensitive <laughs> enough. <laughs> when we go for a walk and Lovecraft points up at the <laughs> the church steeple and all the frets on it and I say, Yep, it's a church steeple <laughs> and he's like, No, no, you're not sensitive enough. You can't see the amazing embodiment of the our our colonial past. I'm like, Yep, it's a steeple, all right. <laughs> um uh, was there a, uh, I think there was a, yeah, there was a tweet earlier this year. Uh, it had a bunch of logos from, you know, car companies, Apple, you know, like that. And then a bunch of leaves. And it says, how sad is that did you recognize all of these and you don't recognize any of these? And like, oh, I got the maple, <laughs> the maple leaf. But like, that is really, imp- that is saying something. Um, but it, that's not horror exactly, but I feel horror when I think about that. We are totally soaking in stuff that we, we can't recognize until it's, it's put into relief. And that, that's what this is. I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's a psychological story in a group. Yeah, actually, I think a good example of that is like, you know, the octopus by Frank Norris. Oh, okay. You've mentioned that. It's book not a, few a horror times. tale, but I, I always thought there's horror elements in it, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that's intentional. Maybe it's just I'm so sensitive <laughs> that yeah. when I when I read it, I feel it. But the way like the railroad is described, you know, 
and even the imagery of the tentacles and the octopus, you know, that's the, the octopus <laughs> right. is the railroad, right? Yeah. Running through the land and tearing through these communities. And, and, the, and the story does get really bad at the end. I mean, farmers are kicked off their land and they end up like prostitutes in San Francisco. I mean, it's horrible things happen to the characters. There's even body horror. Well, yeah, the, you what don't want to get run over by a train. No, this this young girl, she was actually like a love interest, I think, of one of the main characters. But that character gets killed, and she ends up a prostitute, like trying to make money, and like her mom dies, like starving on the streets. I mean, uh, it's I don't know, pretty I, hard to read. That's. Poe, uh, uh, the other reason I went and, you know, found the original is Poe fiddles with his stuff, um, you know, improving it, he thinks, I guess, and generally I think those Iterating are Iterating at best, yeah. Well, no, they're, they're, like, minor polishes, so, like, the E-Tex version I'm looking at, uh, the third, fourth paragraph down starts, um... I am a descendant of a race whose imaginative and easily excitable temperament has at all times rendered them remarkable... Um, but the original, uh, from the magazine and the one from the actual gift for 1840, I am come from a race rather than I am a descendant of a race. Why is, why is he changed? I'm not even sure that he did that change because I haven't looked at every version, but there is a Poe website that tracks all the, uh, the OCR and track all the changes. And over time, these things do get like manipulated like Evan was saying at the beginning, right? The e-text that he's reading is starts with the same first sentence and then becomes a low vocab version of this story so that you can get your job done, right? Those, those e-texts and no sphere Shakespeare's, they're a way of, you know, helping students get their homework finished so that they can say they read the story and they can pass the exam, but it isn't about, uh, the exposure to the actual text. So it's like, let's do Shakespeare, but without the language. What? <laughs> okay. Why? Because the story is important. No, no, the story is not important. It's the way it's written that it's important. The way the actual text is. So uh, I guess it's fine if Poe does it, maybe. But uh, I'm not sure if anybody else can manipulate it and make it better, I doubt that that's the case. These, like, those explicit gender flips, or in this case, I was, I kept thinking about how if you gender, gender they, them, it, um, non-binary it, I think it, the story is unreadable, right? Why do you think it's unreadable? Let me call myself for the present William Wilson. The fair page, now that joke's gone. Or that point is gone. The young, pale, dying guy in the mirror before me is gone, right? Because that page page is all male, right? This has already been too much. And well, then yeah, I'm not sure page is always a male. I mean, usually you can a have a page thing. boy haircut for a girl, but it's a page. A page is male. It's like a maid is girl. Um, but there's also page as in a. There's a, there's the old. Uh, Medieval idea of is like pages in a servant to a better. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I'm yeah, talking about. Pages, but, but, but but doesn't have to be ma- necessarily be male. I mean, Tam- Tamara Pierce, Pierce would have words with you over this. Well, if yeah, but she's writing a fantasy. Only, then why do you need to say page boy 
haircut. Because it's for a girl. Page boy haircut's for a girl. No, but then you could just say a page haircut <laughs> if it were truly a male-only word. I I see what you're saying, but uh, even if even if that's true, let me just read with replacing some words here. Death approaches, and the shadow which foreruns them instead of him has sympathies. I had ne- uh, we I guess no, it would still be I. I had nearly said for the pity for my fellow men. I would fain have them believe that I have been, in some measure, the slave of circumstance beyond human control. I would wish them to seek out for me in the details I am about to give some little oasis of fatality amid wilderness of error. I would have them, that is uh, them in the original there, allow that they cannot refrain, this is all in the original, refrain from allowing that although temptation may have erstwhile existed as a great man was never thus at least tempted before, certainly never thus fell and therefore he it says he he had therefore has he never thus suffered they never thus suffered have i not indeed been living in a dream and am i not so like i think it it wouldn't change the story substantially other than eliminate um possible references that he's doing not that this is a real issue for anybody. I don't think really anybody cares about this except for me. It's just I was thinking about how, you know, they them makes it diffi- more difficult to understand things. Like my my mom would say stuff like, um, "Don't say firefighter. Uh, don't say fireman. Say firefighter. Don't say policewoman. Say police officer." Right? And I'm like, well, why? Because I I have more information when you give me more detail. And and but, but so but why do you want more detail? Because I like, want to know more detail. Like describing the person who's running away with my wallet. Um, he or she resembled somebody, <laughs> right? It's more difficult. It's just like easier. I was arrested by a police police officer. Doesn't tell me, tell the listener the gender of the uh, but, person. But, Does but, that but, matter? I'm going to argue with this here because, because too often the male is used to mean male or female. And so... That's you mean like you, chairman, like 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 chair like like chairman, but so using using that doesn't necessarily. But tell if you, you say chairwoman, the, the policeman arresting me doesn't necessarily tell me that it was a male policeman. I mean, it should, I, I, but it yeah. doesn't. I, I don't know and if that, this is in the podcast. Point, by the way, it's just it's sort of Jesse going crazy. But I agree with you, Paul. Like it, it it, it had it can be defaulted that way. But it, 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 and, and and in general use it is and that's and that is that kind of and kind of elides and points to a idea that society like oh police police officers should be male because it's policemen it it's it, it's a subconscious insidious bias which well you know, that's that's why police that, that's why fire fighter is a better word because it helps well yeah but that's for the that's job but well, that's for the job in general so uh, firefighters apply over there. Is for the group. That firewoman saved my life. Is better than that firefighter saved my life because it's more information. But, but, but yeah. you're making a different neologism, which, and not to mention, okay, so 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 what if what if the what what if the firefighter is non-binary? What do you use that? <laughs> well, see, that's my point. Is like uh, the pi- the pig who's beating me. I don't. What, what, there's a great tweet somebody did. I, I keep thinking about it over and over again. It's it's they use the clap emoji, you know, in in between each word instead of the period. 
<laughs> this is a very, I do this at will all the time. I think I say the period, you know, it's like, that's not true or something like that. And put a capitals, all caps and then period after each word. Like, it's just funny. Anyways, How it was, dare you? yeah, like that. <laughs> that's exactly what I say. Um, it's, it says, um, hire more, uh, torture of female, uh, prison guards. <laughs> It's like, hire more female prison guards. Yay, we're going to get drawn by a female president. Yay! <laughs> that kind of like, yeah, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing. It's the, I don't care what the name of the pig is who's beating me, whether they're gender binary or not, whether male or female, that pig is a pig. Right? That's a, <laughs> the focus on the right detail. Now, if you want to say that pig is a sow, or that pig is a, a boar. That's more ridiculous. Uh, this, this pig might be a boar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think it, it, when when we read Conan, um, it's really obvious what it does. Gender flipping, but it's not so obvious for some things. Like if you re- if you re- reread Neuromancer with Case as female, um, it wouldn't change it that much. I don't think. Because even like, what's his name? Uh, the guy who wrote it, he later has a case as a female in one of his later books. It doesn't really make it that much of a difference to the story. But in the case of, uh, uh, of a story where you, like this, where he's talking about, it's so dependent on language. It'd be like rewriting Shakespeare to do an all female version of, uh, something and then have not, not keep the he's. With uh, I mean, I, I also think the the bigger part of this that the gender flip, uh, gender swap conversation is missing is uh, so like the the social position of mm. a like, woman of a similar class and racial background in the United States is like going to be like super different in 1840. <laughs> Holy shit! Character, yes, right. Or I guess it would be in the 1820s, UK, not in the yeah, United States, yeah. but earlier. Yeah, it, it, impossible. Like they have military schools for girls, but not at this time, right? And and really, military schools are you know what few of them are left are not for girls. Right? There are universities that allow girls in, but you know they used to have like those ads in the 1920s for military schools were huge. It's like that movie Taps. You guys all seen that movie? That's a really yes. interesting movie. I keep thinking about that movie again. Um, it's got a lot of famous actors, right? Um, mm-hmm. but it, it's so, it's such a funny movie. It's very Edgar Allan Poe, if you think about it, because it's about a school, that, a military school that's closing because they can't afford it or, you know, it's not making any money. And so what do the kids do? They take over the school in a military coup to keep it open. <laughs> like, what a weird idea it's very american what what does that, it mean that is, uh, that is strange it's such a strange film i i haven't seen it since you know mid 80s or whatever and george c scott playing you know he was just come off of Patton. I guess maybe not just come off of, but no, no, Patton played, was a lot longer. Than yeah, it's the seventies, all right. But people would have recognized. That's what I would have recognized him from, right? Um, and then you've got all these. Uh, the Tom Cruise character seems like a lot more genuinely Tom Cruise in there. <laughs> I don't know, Sean Penn, Timothy Hutton. 
Giancarlo Esposito. Wow. He was in there? Gus Fring. Wow. Gus Fring was was uh in uh in Taps. I'm surprised. Makes sense. He's the right age for it. So yeah, that that movie needs to be uh, deconstructed, and somebody needs to explain to me how it came to be. It's based on a book. Okay, that explains it. Huh. But this is more in the realm of trivia. But I uh-huh. came across a a kind of a gender swap or a, like an interesting gender tidbit when I was rewatching Star Trek II: oh. Wrath of Khan. The, the original, that, not the remake. I, 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 I watched that movie a bunch of times, but it's I haven't watched movie. it for quite a while. And I, I guess I never remembered that Savick is always referred to as Mr. Savick. Mm. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. And then right. I looked this up, and here's the explanation from IMDb. Savick was originally intended to be a male Vulcan, but was changed later to a female Vulcan-Romulan hybrid. Uh, the rewrite wasn't thorough enough. So oh. Savick is referred to as Mr. Savick at the film. Oh, really? Although thought... Star Trek fans and naval buffs have pointed out that in actual nautical jar- jargon, women mm-hmm. are dressed as such. Yeah. Right, right, because the there's a next... Right, there's a next so generation... So is it a mistake episode. or is this an intention? I um, doubt that that story is true, that it's it was an accident. I think they're very careful about that yeah, military-naval stuff. Naval. It's naval, and here's why. Because there's a next generation yeah. episode where Troy... Decides to get her command, go on the command track, and uh, Riker keeps referring to her as Mr. Troy specifically. <laughs> so it annoys her, but it's the Mr. Mzadi. <laughs> no, hey, now, then now you're mixing up the relationship. But yeah, and basically oh she God. basically has to go through basically a Kobayashi Maru sort of test <laughs> in that episode, and yes, she's always Mr. Troy because that's the name, that's the that's the term that has. Survived into the 24th century. I keep thinking Janeway insists on ma'am, right? She insists on being yes, ma'am. Well, that, uh, she's off we, in we, the we, we, Delta Quadrant. That's a different era, well, area we, space. She, well, we, she is. Well, I think she she insisted on that before getting catapulted to the Delta Quadrant. So I, I I'm I'm watching Picard, you know Picard in Next Generation. You hate watching it apparently. No, I love Next Generation. That's the thing is I'm watching. Well, I hate watching Picard. No, I finished watching that. Um, oh. um, a- anyways, I'm watching Picard, and I'm thinking, God, this guy's so erudite, and he's like, he likes archaeology, he likes all the things I like, you know. And then I, I realize, oh yeah, the actor is reading lines that the writer wrote. Yeah, that's why my image of why Picard should have worked, you know, as a as a separate show. Is like it should have worked because it's the same guy, but it's not the same guy. It's just the same actor, right? It's not like he wrote all those those great Picard speeches, right? Where he talks about you know the dignity of all human beings and all that stuff. <laughs> they didn't carry the writers with the show to give Picard those lines, so it's no wonder I don't like <laughs> like like I really like when when Picard gives those speeches. I think uh, it's it's like my version of the West Wing speeches, you know. <laughs> West Wing's we can all get along, but at least <laughs> that's not that that's a fantasy show. Whereas uh, with Star Trek: Next Generation, I feel like oh, it's it's a it's a science fiction show, and it is yeah, even more realistic than the West Wing, <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that insane? <laughs> <laughs> that is way more realistic. Um, 
And, and, and more importantly, it's more idealistic because there's a cynicism at the at the center of of the West Wing, and that it it says, forget about what we actually know about how the sausage is made, because that's not going to be. But uh, I I also keep I'm paying a lot more attention to the. I, I was interested at the time, but I haven't watched the show since. I know it came out in the eighties and nineties. Um, and I'm paying a lot more attention to the, how the economy works. So they do have like trade and stuff, but, um, uh, that Vash character, you know, her, I don't think she has a last name. Picard's love yeah, interest. The, the criminal Gosh, archaeologist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's always trying to make a profit. Um, and I, I'm, I remember she shows up in, she, uh, she, she shows just, up in DS9. Yeah. yeah with Q. Trying to keep her and, uh, Q's got a really interesting thing going on too. Cause he's, he's like, um, he's, he's kind of Lovecraftian in his interest in sex. He, <laughs> like, what? He's, well, like Lovecraft's sort of not interested. And so is yeah. he, but he's also like playful in a way that is ridiculous. Like he's not sexual at all. The actor character, right? Um, but he like he'll lie in bed with Picard, and Picard can't do anything about it because he's a god, right? He can't punch him. Or, you know, he's always making fun of Worf. Um, it's really fun stuff. We're all done. Who, who needs to well, go? We, we 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 didn't tie a bow on this episode. Right. Uh, I wanted to come back and okay. say when we were talking, when y'all were talking about how bad. Was as opposed to just you know William Wilson. Like mm-hmm. the rot line kept running through my head of mad, bad, and na- dangerous to know. Yeah, yeah. Which of That's course Byron. is about yeah. Byron. Um, and, he definitely uh, liked that by Carolyn Lamb. Um, but uh, that's also ties in nicely because of um, the uh, the short story. Um, this story being partly inspired by the um <clears throat> the uh unwritten drama of Lord Byron by uh Washington Irving and then uh, Oh yeah yeah that's and right and uh, later when when Poe wrote his story he uh persuaded uh Washington Irving to write a sort of reference or Blurb. endorsement yeah. for his own story Mhm So that was fun He's he he is mad, bad, and, or was mad, bad, and dangerous. No, but on the other hand, you really do need to know him through his writing because it's your, your life would be a tra- tragic without it. I think. Yeah, it, actual Poe was more dangerous to be known by because then he <laughs> would go attack you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like he beat up on a lot of people. But no, I meant verbally. Um, yeah, no, he, he savage you. Yeah. He would totally savage you. He would be like, you know, people. Uh, I think it was Will was saying, I'm like, uh, it's a guy who wrote Mimic. Uh, you know, that famous story. Look, got, look. Got turned into a, he was like a fan critic or something. Uh, he savaged A.E. A. Van Vaught's, um. Oh, Damon Knight. Damon Knight. I'm pretty sure ah. that's, is that, yeah. I think maybe Damon Knight didn't write Mimic. Anyways, um, he was, <laughs> Will was saying, I'm like Damon Knight. I'm wait, pretty wait, wait, fucking nice compared. Donald Walheim right wrote uh, Mimic, right? Mimic, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I was, I was uh, Jesse uh, 
Uh, Jesse keeps returning to many of the same topics to like uh, beat his drum about them, which is, you know, it's a good way to get followers on Twitter. Ah! <laughs> um, no, I'm not trying to get followers. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm just saying, like, uh, if this behavior were exhibited by somebody else, you might think, oh, well, that person's just doing that to get followers on Twitter, or they're trying to make a reputation for themselves, like Damon Knight did beating up A.E. Van Bok. If I was trying to get followers on Twitter, I'd do what a lot, I see a lot of writers do. They ask, uh, you know, questions that are designed to elicit responses. It's like engagement, you know? I see, yeah. I, I, and I, I, after a while, if that person does it too much, I stop following them because I don't, I, I think it's morally questionable. And I know that's hilarious because it's so not interesting. <laughs> but yeah, I'm like, I'm a strict discipline. Is the right term. No, but that's in my view, it is. It's morally questionable. Um, but I, but I'm fucking weird, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm like Nietzsche with my, you know, you have to make a universal rule. If I wouldn't do it, then nobody should do it. Yeah, that's that doesn't make any sense. Uh, categorical? <laughs> no, that's Kant. Sorry, uh, Kant. Like, like, categorical I, I imperative. That's just like a category error. Uh, well, that's that's what the categorical imperative is, right? So, like for example, um, some people don't like uh, meat. Uh, in fact, a couple of people on this podcast maybe they like it. They just don't they don't eat it or whatever, right? Um, and if you were acting like me, you would be angry, maybe, or I don't know. I don't, I know, I don't know how anyone else should feel about it. But like, um, some, there was a really interesting analysis of Joe Rogan, why people don't like him. Uh, the liberal people don't like him. Um, and the analysis was basically that, um, although, uh, socially liberal, he's uh, culturally conservative and, what that means is like he likes hunting and he likes uh MMA and stuff like that right but he's also in favor of you know legalizing marijuana and um uh you know he's pro life or not pro life pro pro choice blah 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 right um i think i think it might just be that he's rude you know and like like that's part of well, it. that's like, certainly I think part, part of, of it, his sure. uh, part of his performance is like so for him to like do what he needs to do he has to like uh, I mean, do what he needs to do for his like performance to work. He has to like uh, say things that would be like upsetting to like a large cross section of people. But that's like, um, you know, I I, I mean, I, I don't think it's that mysterious. I don't think it's like, oh well, he's like, uh, like culturally conservative. I think it's that he like like uh, absolutely he's like saying things that are designed to be upsetting because like you you like to hear like his audience likes to hear that right like. So like he's rude. It's a bug, not a feature, but it upsets people. He's, it also like, he's not really rude compared to most. Like you know, if you're thinking of yeah, rude comedians, Rogan, because I don't get a rude vibe. No, he's not rude. No, he, not, he not, not, he's crude. Personally, he rude, can make I mean, some like, crude jokes, but he's like like he uh, uses... I mean, he's like intentionally provocative in a way that's like uh, designed to be upsetting. Pathetic. <clears throat> like if like a. Uh, like if you were in a relationship with somebody, not in a relationship, if you like, like somebody you just like knew, uh, interpersonally, like, uh, just like brought up, like, uh, look at these like freaks on the internet with their vegan cats, their vegan cats are dying. <laughs> like, like, that's like, I mean, like, like, you know, if you're friends with somebody, that's like an interesting conversation, maybe, mm-hmm. but it's also, uh, I mean, it, it's impolite. Yeah. No, he's definitely not concerned with, you know, politeness. But he's not rude 
he's he's crude certainly but there's the, maybe crude is a better term i mean and that's like been his like but uh, not I mean, that's not his major thing either guy, right like this is the fear factor guy yeah but again like if you think like i never watched fear factor because i that would not be my thing right like i i'm not yeah a, but i mean like joe rogan like like you know he's but, like on there like encouraging people to eat worms being like you got to eat this worm man you got to eat this worm <laughs> yeah. like, like that's uh right uh, for the money you know, like so it's not mysterious that people don't like joe rogan right like it's not like joe rogan has like you know, like his formula is designed to appeal to all people at all times. But see, like, he no. didn't invent that show, right? He was just hi- he's a hired gun on that show, so it's not like he goes around doing that in real life. <laughs> that he was like an actor, and they hired him for that job. Yeah, but I mean, like that's built into like the like if you're an entertainer of this style, like you like people are not going to like. Well, you. Well, it's funny because like I'm you. thinking about like how it's reversed. Like uh, hearing Patrick Stewart talk today, I don't think like of him at all. Like picard right uh the original next generation but also like guinan when she gives advice on the show i'm like she's right about everything <laughs> and yeah, when i hear whoopi goldberg talk on the view i'm like this girl does not has not read a fucking book in her whole life she doesn't know anything like she's dumb <laughs> and yet she's a good actor and i totally believed her as this wise you know sage ship's other counselor Right. In fact, I think her advice is generally better than Deanna Troy's, which is more like. <laughs> I mean, Deanna Troy Again, is there the for like the writers. Yeah, yeah. It, but you know what? There's so many mistakes that are happening. Like I, I always think about how <laughs> Gene Roddenberry he's conceiving the show. And he says, "And get this, we're gonna have a blind guy as the pilot." What do you think? And everybody's like, "Okay." <laughs> and then and they like, Andy Payne, how do you like that? <laughs> no, we don't have an we don't have a ship's engineer. Oh shit. Oh we'll deal with that later. <laughs> like <laughs> they have to promote him up three ranks to get him into the right job so he has something to do. Because that that uh con officer is like the least interesting person on the bridge, right? The person who steers the ship, that's Wesley. Yeah. Wesley's job for most most of the show, right? Um, so, yeah, it's the way they wrote, you know, the reason Wesley got all the hate is not because of the actor, it's because of the, the writing of him, in the same way Deanna Troy, right? She, she does a really good job with what she's given, but she's not given very much good stuff. Although, well, the, 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 the novel Imzadi is much better than, I think I read it, of what she gets in the actual series. Absolutely. I, read it. I, I watched an episode recently. But, uh, but can we can we put a cork on this episode? We're done. I've got to go. Go, Paul. Yeah, but but we never we never said like okay, we're done with this episode. This episode is complete. I record. I, I don't know. Yeah, you can stop. I'm I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I know I love to talk with you guys, but <laughs> no, you got we stuff keep to pushing do. Pushing this later and later. These you got these stuff to do. I get it. Running into other things I do, and I really feel bad about it. Don't it, worry. It doesn't help that we talk for forty minutes before we actually start the episode, yeah, Paul. Come on. That's yeah. fun. That's the save it for All the right. podcast section. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will see you guys. All right. Have a good one, Paul. I watched an episode of Next Generation recently um, where they're, like, trapped in some void or something. And there's, like, everybody on the ship is having be- nightmares. I think it might have been called nightmares or something like that. And then the uh, th- there was a, another 
Federation ship that was stuck there and everybody on the ship went crazy and killed themselves or killed everybody else except for the ship's counselor who was like a another Betazoid and he's like in a coma or whatever. And then um, it turns out that there there's a alien species also trapped in this void and they are transmitting on the dream frequency wavelength and that's blocking out the ability of people to dream. Nice. And then Deanna oh, Troy, yeah, Deanna Troy's, uh, can dream and she has nightmares and they have to send a, a message through the dream. Um, and the dream, uh, and what I really liked about it is like, oh, this feels like it's sort of like dreamland sort of thing, but it's not really science fiction. But I love, I, I forgot the thing is like a two eye staring, uh, one moon orbiting. And so what it turned out was, uh, the other ship had some explosive. All they needed was some hydrogen. And hydrogen is one moon orbiting, right? Uh. And so she has to transmit this message. We've, we're doing it, do it now, right? We're sending off the thing. And it's like, oh yeah, it is like a real cool science fiction idea at its core. I mean, it's bullshit, but it's also, uh, doing real science fiction, not hard science fiction, but science fiction. And that's what I love about next generation. They do these, sort of science fiction shows every week. And sometimes they work really well, and sometimes they work okay. But, like, I just skipped that Drumhead episode because I'd seen the review of it on uh, the Red Letter Media. Red Letter Media. So I didn't need to feel like I needed to rewatch it, but it's a good show. I forgot how I, how much I enjoyed the, it. the top ten? The yeah, I watched top that top ten, 10 thing, and I, I haven't been watching those episodes. Although... Uh, yesterday's Enterprise was really good. I've forgotten how good that was. That's a great episode, yeah. I mean, it's funny, something came out, what, 30 years ago? And, like, you watched it once 30 years ago and you still remember it fairly well? Actually, I watched a rerun of it this week. (laughs) Oh, well, that's you. Yeah, I mean, I watched it, I don't know, a couple weeks ago as well. But my point is, is, like, I had remembered it from, for 30 years. Yes. As being, like, a good episode, and... I forgot mm-hmm. some of the details, but I also remembered a lot of the details. And um, and I forgot about the one with Tasha Yar's sister, where they go back to that planet. I think I sent Evan. We've talked a lot about Next Generation on DMs. Did I tell you about that one, Evan? Yeah, I don't think I read that 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 that, that, that website, though. Was no. it Tasha Yar's sister? So they go back to Tasha Yar's planet. Remember, oh, she... This is familiar. She grew up on a uh, a failed state. Yeah, I think I said it was like her that planet was Libya. Like the it, it, if you want to explore the yeah, dark side. Yeah, I remember side, hearing something about, you know, just gangs of people it's... running around doing whatever they want. Yeah, they had implants that prevented them from like getting too close to each other and then they she scammed the enterprise folks into getting them inside the base to do them really damage because she was loyal to her it was a faction or whatever it's called. But what's funny is I was thinking about if you want to make a dark version of next generation, you know, you want to darken up the Star Trek universe. There are lots of corners where you could do it. Like explaining why this Federation colony collapsed and is destroyed and became a Libya, you know, failed state sort of thing. Um, it'd be really interesting because, if you've got all these colonies all over the galaxy, 
Um, and the way they deal with them, right? Like I just watched the one called First Contact where they show up on the planet and Riker's got some implants and, and, uh, oh yeah, uh, BB Newworth shows up and, and says, I'll help you out of the hospital, but you have to have sex with me. I have to have sex with an alien. <laughs> Do you remember that episode? BB Newworth showed up as an alien. It's, it's literally called First Contact. It's another good episode, just not as good as uh, yesterday's Enterprise. First contact. So, despite the Star Trek uh, <laughs> tangents and all leaving, I do have a couple more things. Uh huh. Okay, go for it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm still recording. <laughs> good, um, good. First of all, this is not my favorite post story by any means. Not um, mine either. And I- I thought it was kind of trivial the first time I read it, but it does reward further story. Mm-hmm. I actually liked the uh, audio version of this better than the text. Mm. Um, but then again, I read the text really late at night, so that might have hurt my comprehension. Um, <clears throat> let's see, what else did I want to say? Oh, uh, just the um, influences that it's had through time. Uh, um it, of course, was written before people had any idea of the superego. Um, oh, yeah. Before, Right. But, um, of course, there was much discussion of conscience in the uh, in literature. But, you know, I don't know of any earlier stories than this that had a conscience sort of animate itself and, and uh, fight the protagonist in this particular way. Um, but then, of course... Uh, uh, going going past that, um, uh, it that became a thing in literature and later in movies. Sure. Um, I had mentioned the 1913 film *The Student of Prague*, which mm-hmm. is loosely based on this. In the beginning, it's quite different in that the student sells his soul to the devil, and then after that, uh, it, because he's poor and you know, uh, uh, <laughs> wants money. Um, and then after that, uh, his double comes stalking out of the mirror and does bad things. Um, but that was, uh, uh, that was written up in a major psychological journal. Hmm. Um, <laughs> the, the movie was, you know, uh, just the discussion of conscious and superego and all that. And then there were numerous other, versions of that you know down through the 68 version that you showed me mm-hmm. and i know that there's a uh, dorothy shorts dorothy sayers mystery short story called the image in the mirror which is partly inspired by uh the student of prague mm. film so just a lot of interesting stuff from this story definitely and it it, it does have uh sort of a lower standing in in the public mind I know that it, it was not, I, I was met, I was talking to somebody late last night. Yeah. Connor about, uh, other Poe stories that are sort of similarly forgotten. Um, there's one called, uh, mm-hmm. the system of Dr. Tar and professor Th- feather, which got a recent TV or movie adaptation. Um, and that, that is, again, that's very psychological. It's kind of paired with this one. It's very psychologically interesting. Um, because it's about the inmates of an insane, insane asylum taking over, um, and claiming to be the staff. Oh. And then the staff are in the cages, right? Oh, interesting. And, you know, tar and feather, get it? Uh, it's like, um, 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I do believe this is very autobiographical, which, ex, you know, explains his, his danger. Um, look at this one. Uh, this is that first contact episode. Evan? Yeah. Um, the, there's a question. Here. They go to the planet and they say, hey, you want to join the Federation? You're about to do warp technology. More importantly, uh, Riker is missing. Can you help us find him? And they, they sort of beam up or beam down the, the scientist who's doing that, the warping. But then the question that was really interesting in my mind is he says to, Picard says to the, I guess, president of the planet, he says, um, you know, if you want us to go away, you just say the word, we'll never come back. If you want us to never come back, we'll never come back. This is not, we're not forcing you to do anything. We're just opening a door and saying, if you'd like to come in to the greater universe, you may, right? And uh, the guy says, you'll really go away and not come back if I say never come back? And, he, and Picard says, yes. I was thinking, why is this one president get to decide for the whole planet? And what about like two years from now? So I thought that was a really interesting thing. It's like if you have, uh, you know, the United States come into some African country, you know, Wakanda or whatever with low tech. Um, this outside, outside of contact. Excuse me, that's the wrong way around. Okay. Well, that, but that, the, the, the point is, is it has to be something that out of, you know, like Barbary pilot, pirates era, uh, go into the United States and say, Hey, would you like to join the UN? And if you say no, that's fine. Um, but you can, you know, we'll never ask you again. Or more importantly, uh, you won't be able to ever ask to be in again. Um, that's not fair. Like, why does this one guy get to decide for the whole planet? Um, because it makes sense from the Picard's point of view. It's uh, from the re- watcher's point of view, right? That we are watching this first contact thing. They're doing it very delicately. They're trying to do their best. And then we find out ultimately that, uh, it's only from that point of view that it makes sense. Yeah. Looking back, backward, we should schedule that. Definitely. Well, I think we should schedule a yellow wallpaper sometimes. Already done, my dear. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) Already done. I'll send you the link. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Listen to that. Pretty sure. Yeah. Sorry. It's hard. I I was trying. It's hard to see what all has been done sometimes. Oh, it's 500, 600 episodes. When I search by tag, it brings up every. Pretty sure. uh, thing that ever mentions Poe <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, uh, the search engine's not that great either. Um, what I do have, um, one of the things, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure I did it, but I'm pretty sure I did it. Um, I found the original publication of that, and it's not under her name. It's under her uh, Stetson name. It's really interesting. And it has illustrations. Huh. Um, Gilman. Yeah, there's her land, and there's the yellow wallpaper. Uh, episode 178. Uh, uh. So, there it is. So, um, read by M- Michelle Sullivan with Jesse, Tamahome, Jenny, and Julie Hoverson. Cool. I will definitely give that a Some listen. great art in there, too, I remember. Oh. Uh, oh, there's J.G. Ballard getting mentioned. And then I found some old wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> That's an hour and 50 minutes. 
that's a uh, that story is not that long. So yeah, thirty two minutes. So it's a good mm-hmm. chunk. But I haven't. That's back in twenty twelve. So I haven't heard that one since then. Titus Andronicus, Life by Emily Dickinson, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. That's a good movie. House, M.D. The Biggest Loser. That would have been something Tamahomey contributed. <laughs> that, uh, uh, Will, you are the new Tamahomey. <laughs> uh, what's the? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Since I like watch TV, you watch uh, um, those uh, reality TV shows, right? Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, uh, some, but yeah, yeah. I like them. I've never. Uh, I don't know what the Biggest Loser is, but I'm pretty sure it's a. It's a. Uh, it is. It, it's uh, it's an exploitative TV show and uh, like yeah um, yeah it's a reality show. Is it still going? No, I don't okay, think good. so. Good. <laughs> See, that's why I'm saying is is that the, the, it, it should be a rule that that show shouldn't exist. That I mean, I I'm not going to enforce it because it's ridiculous, but th- that shouldn't exist. Reality TV has gone downhill since Teresa. Dude, TV is really bad. We were in a renaissance like five minutes ago, and now it's, now it's everything that Netflix is putting out is so like so much dross. Yeah, they got so, Cobra uh, Kai now. I've been watching that. Cobra Kai, yeah, but that was on YouTube before, so I saw that. I downloaded yeah. it all. Um, it's a good show. I like that it inverts the. Uh, but I, I relationship. Yeah, like, that that guy being the bad guy, the karate kid becoming the bad guy. I enjoy that. Yeah, but uh, it's a good show. I don't know if I, I the first few episodes I thought like, am I supposed to take this seriously? Like this guy's like driving around drunk, still worrying about a fight <laughs> thirty years ago. <laughs> yeah, but they're all, that's the real reality of the show, right? But it's, the, it's a yeah, lot of people that's like Al, that. That's, that's the Al Bundy thing, right? Yeah, again, that's a really good show. Still living in high school. I mean, I don't think I should rewatch it, but I remember it being. What I liked about that show was is it didn't give a shit, right? Yeah, it was the it was basically it was making fun of all those eighties, you know, family shows where they have like a family and they learn a lesson. <laughs> There's no lessons learned on that show. Yeah, Al Bundy you hates his wife. Married with children, like no. anytime in the past time year. Ten years, it's 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 unwatchable. It's horrible. I'm sure that's true. Um, there there was a really great Fox show. Um, that got canceled. It was, it was uh, this weird actor Chris. I can't remember his name. He's bald. He had a mustache and a beard when nobody had mustaches and beards. Um, you know who I'm talking about? The shows. Oh shit! Yeah. It was like a weird half hour comedy. Um. Damn, Fox TV shows from the... When did Fox come on the air? From the 90s? Yeah, I guess it would have been the 90s. Yeah, I'm like the right age for Fox to like see Maternal. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, um, before I have to get out of here, I want to pitch uh, a couple of uh, oh, yeah, other we, things. We should schedule uh, that other one as well. When, when, uh, yeah, yeah, but I, I, let me pitch these things, then we right. can go to schedule. All right. um, so uh, I read both of these this week, and they like were interesting, and I wanted to reread them. One of these I've actually read twice. Trish might be interested in this one because it's by Philip Jose Farmer. <laughs> um, Rastignac, the Devil. It's a Greg Marguerite audiobook. 
hour and a half. Um, French colonists on a planet ruled by reptiles and amphibians are forced to wear living skins and subdue <laughs> uh, aggression and enforce vegetarianism. Wow. Uh, as children, Rastignac and his reptile friend, Matt Faraday, force themselves to become carnivores and begin a protein-fueled journey that causes Rastignac to develop a philosophy of violence. When a spaceship from Earth crashes in the ocean, Rastignac and company must put at, put their philosophy to the test. And so there's like elements of the green odyssey to this one. Uh, but, uh, it's, it, it it's a bit weird. Um, uh, I think the, the, the Filipose farmer people believe this is not in the public domain, but, uh, if it's like good enough for archive.org, it's good enough for me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. I, uh, Greg yeah. Marguerite, my dead friend. Definitely. He had good taste. Um, that's yeah. uh, that's a short story. We could put that right after Rage. That yeah, way. it's an and like the it's uh, it's more like a novella. Or yeah, novel like at night. Yeah, a little longer yeah. than this. Yeah, yeah. And then the other one that I did this week that I kind of want to reread is this uh, Frederick Pohl story, um, "A Tunnel Under the World." I, I knew you I were going to say that. I yeah, said I, I was going to say it, but I didn't. Yeah, I wanted to see. Uh, I think you haven't done it before on the show. No, never I mean, done it, but I've, I've written yeah, about like it. Almost, it's almost Dickian. Yes. It's like, like the character slowly realizes he's like a robot being subjected to the same advertisements over and over again. Mm. Uh, so there's a Greg version, there's a Phil version, and like X-1 did it. So mm-hmm. I think that's a good one to do. I'm, g- I'm down with both of those. Could do uh, two back-to-back um, uh, on the 25th and the... 11th if uh but um maybe we should um make that after the blade runner and then put in uh what's the um bellamy yeah we need to get make sure evan's available for that one because that's important for evan bellamy i see you have six people on blade runner and that's (laughs) probably the maximum you would want for a twitch which i guess that's what you're doing on gogcom uh Um, no 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 we're gonna play the game and then talk about it it's um uh, oh it's a game yeah it's, oh, it's oh, an amazing game yeah well, i will i will certainly watch that episode then That's there's no watching <laughs> no it's just no gog.com is where you buy it you but it's on the schedule so yeah so but if you want to play if you <laughs> play if you want to if you want to do uh, the show we're going to be talking about it we're not going to be doing a playthrough Oh, I see. So people would play it separately and then yeah. review the game. And then you s- see, it. so like this game is really good. I play, I bought it and played it. Um, and then I, it got so expensive. I sold my copy and made a copy of it, you know? Um, <laughs> cause I, I, that's how I made money before I became a tutor. I was selling stuff, right? So I'd buy things and sell things. Um, but uh, now it's available on good old games with DRM free, and uh, uh, it runs on modern computers. I, I don't think they remastered it exactly, but they made it playable, which it was not basically when I was playing it because it was it's an old game it's from 1997. Hmm. But what's cool about it is it's the same plot as Blade Runner, but with a different guy and. So you, there's very little crossover with the movie, but the locations are similar and the problems are similar. Well, this would be the first video game I have played in years and years and years and years. But it's uh, a point and click adventure, like uh, what do you call that? Um, King's Quest. 
So the kind of old-fashioned stuff that I've done before. Well, I will check that out. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, no, no rush on that because that's ways away. And the game yeah, is, sure. I think, it's like eight-hour game maximum, right? It's not like a huge... Uh, it does have replayability, some some replayability, but I don't think we necessarily... might be better just to do one and done and then uh, see what everybody's ending is different because there's different oh, endings. interesting. <laughs> who is a who turns out to be a replicant and such when you make your moral choices that was uh uh pretty sure that was um Marissa's idea because she's a big gamer yeah that was her yeah so um how about uh Bellamy on the uh, November 11th on November 1st Evan that's too far away for you 100% commit or what? Just be fine. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. What's it called? I can leave China for a while. It's called um, Looking Backward. I think there's only one version on LibriVox, which is kind of surprising, but at least it's a narrator, single narrator. Looking Backward. Edward. Tell on me. You know about this book, Trish? I have not read it. Me neither. Um, hmm. Jesse? Yeah, I've only read a few chapters of it. Uh, Comma, Trish, question I know pretty well. I think you'll probably mostly be bored. Yeah, I expect to be bored. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You did like the Iron Heel. You're not going to like this. I hated the Iron Heel in so so many ways because it's mostly lectures. You shouldn't hate the Iron Heel because it's awesome. It's interesting, but it's not awesome. It's interesting. Uh, Like... Uh, I, I'm looking forward to when we eventually do... Um, Especially the second half. Well, the second half gets pretty exciting there. Okay. Well, I didn't find... I didn't, I didn't, lecture stuff. I didn't find it to be exciting at all. It's worse, his worst book that I've read. Um, uh, interesting ideas. Not a good book. That's what I recall. Okay. Um, and then you want Rastanak the Devil, right? On the yeah. 25th? Of October. So, you, so you can finally teach us that we we've gone astray. Um, really? By, uh, not that getting enough. It does look meat. like it'll spark some interesting discussions. <laughs> the the skins in the story are really interesting. Um, what was it? And it's like the story's like way weirder than the description makes it sound to be uh, as well. So. Golly, that's gonna have to do some work to <laughs> make it weirder than the description. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's really weird. Um, <laughs> it's also like uh, you know, since it's farmer, like I don't think people will be surprised by this. It's like a little horny, like, like yeah, no that's actual, not surprising at all. Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no actual sex in it, but it's like it's very like uh, you know, like. I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a kissing book, uh, uh, Evan, but I, I think the, the what's in it will be like more exciting than kissing, although more disturbing. Uh, no uh, sexual violence that I'm aware of in the story, uh, but uh, you know. Uh, so everybody's done for that as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Like sure. I'll put a question mark on you, just like it, I've it done for re- looking backward. Although I, I, I don't want to do looking backward because I'm looking forward to it. I'm look, I'm. Looking forward to having finished it because it's so important, right? Yeah, it's, it a, it's like an interesting book. It's an important uh, book too, right? Like I don't think anybody yeah. says William Wilson is is super important, but on the other hand, that uh, the one Trish wanted to do, Yellow Wallpaper, that's important as well as good, 
right? <laughs> Whereas I think, you know, there's a lot more important Poe's than William Wilson. It's just that it's a, you know, you should, you should not but only read, they even form like groups. Yeah. Yeah. One, one, one and done. That's the way we do it. Say again, Evan. No, Bellamy really, uh, like inspired actual social movements. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. That's groups formed around the ideas of that book. So. Yeah. It's kind of historically significant. It is. And it fits with the pattern. Like my mom was saying, do other people get to choose? <laughs> your shows on uh, and I'm like no nobody chooses what happens is it has to have the certain criteria right like number one is it has to be doable <laughs> number two it has to be uh, available as an audiobook pretty much right and uh, preferably public domain that's a major slot in its favor but more importantly books suggest books right so the reason we're looking at looking backward is because we did that Vril book. Yeah. Right? And the reason we're looking at Vril was some other reason. There's like if if you follow the traces, it goes all the way back, right? So that it it it's always like I'm really interested in Robert E. Howard. I haven't done a Robert E. Howard in a while. Time to do a Robert E. Howard. Because he's so important. He's so good. So good at what he does. And what he does is very mysterious. We, eventually we're going to get to everything. <laughs> we go long enough, there's going to be a 21st century novel that's worth reading. <laughs> I, I I was thinking, I uh, Trish, you probably never thought about that tweet after I did it. I was thinking about your, your thing after, because like, whenever somebody questions me, I'm like, oh shit, what if I'm wrong? Like, what if I'm wrong? So I, I spend like hours thinking about it, and I like weeks go by, and then I think about it. And so, like, I was thinking, what, is there anyone in the tw- any novel of the 21st century that's really worth doing? And I've done some, right? Like, uh, we did, we've done a few 21st century novels, but th- I'm not sure they're, they were worth doing, um, as much as they were interest, you know, fun. Like, uh, that, um, Martian, The Martian. That's a good book. But is it an important book? Not really. It's interesting. It's fun. But it's sort well, of. A, I could suggest a ton of short stories from the 20th century. Absolutely. To to that are not public domain, but that are on free to listen podcasts. Yeah, yeah, and there's uh, that that I'd I'd like to always get the audio for it. That's another thing, right? So like. Oh, I see what you mean. Like yeah. looking backward is available. That's one of the reasons. It's an absolute yes, we can do it. Right? There's an audiobook available. I can put it up. Rastanak the Devil. Done. Rage. That is not because it's available. It's kind of the opposite. And it's because Evan's always talking about Stephen King. And I don't want to read long books. And I also want to see what what's what broke Stephen King. Right? <laughs> Why he doesn't want... Like, I, I want to see... And it's probably not going to be as good as I think it is in that interesting way. But, yeah, I'm totally open to suggestions because there wouldn't be a show... I don't do shows by myself, right? <laughs> I mean, there's some good, good King short stories. Yeah, think. like so that. I have all the audiobooks. The N sounded uh, really good. The N is N is good. Like when you go back to like Night Shift, they're really super pulpy. Mm. It's all like he's really influenced by those EC comics back I like then. That. So those are really fun. Like the Gray Matter one. That that might be worth doing. Just that sounds scary. That episode. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we got we, episode we, wasn't that good. T- tell me the again once we get that king. When, once we get the king. Um, and the other thing is, you know, we don't do back to back to back to back, right? There's never a back to back. Um, so uh, I'm totally down for more king, especially in the that's short my stories. thing, right? I just kind of plow through an author for yeah. 50 episodes, right? But you're, you're, um, <laughs> Parkman, you get through the Parkman well. <laughs> uh, I, uh, no, I stopped to listen to some other stuff, but I'll, I'll pick it up. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I've that only was been such, even for me, that was a Pontiac. That was a slog. I, I, I went through all, like, Oregon Trail, Pontiac, and all of England and France and North America. And it, it, like, altogether, it was like 40 episodes or something. Your enthusiasm really carries what I've yeah, listened to. Yeah, totally. Um, like, I, I, mean, uh, I mean, I'm excited to get back to it. It's just there's so many things to listen to. I want to do but another... By the time I got to, like, the death of Wolf and that shit, I just didn't care anymore. <laughs> Maybe I, I kind of can fake it, but... So, um, I did a Richard K. Morgan show. You guys know Mm -hmm. that Altered Carbon, right? Um, yeah. Because that movie came out. But I, I never thought Altered Carbon was his best thing. I really like, um, Market Forces. You guys heard of this book, read this book? I, I talked about it with, um, I talked my friend uh, Luke Burridge into reading it. And I think he might have done a review of it or, you know, one of his podcast reviews of it. Um, it's a really interesting book, so let's get the group chat here and send you the Wikipedia entry for Morgan. There it is. Um, uh, so the K in Richard K. Morgan is because of Philip K. Dick, right, to distinguish him in North America, because in the UK he's just Richard Morgan, but it was a marketing gimmick. Um, so he has most, he mostly does series. Right, the Takeshi Kovach, then he did this fantasy series. I like the Black Man first book. That was good. I didn't really follow the other ones. But he has this 2004 novel called Market Forces. I'll just read the Wikipedia entry here for you. Market Forces is a science fiction thriller novel by Richard Morgan set in 2049. The story follows Chris Faulkner as he starts a new job as a junior executive at Shorn Associates. Working in their conflict investment division, where the company supports foreign in, foreign governments in exchange for a percentage of the country's gross to metro domestic product, contracts are awarded and promotions are given to employees through driving duels in which combatants race vehicles on empty rows and often kill their opponents. With the Shorn-supported comp- Colombian dictator Echevarra expected to transfer power to his son, who is supported by a competing firm, Chris allies Shorn with a rebel group to overthrow the government through other executives, uh, though other executives attempt to sabotage his plans. <clears throat> That's the plot, but the premise is much more interesting. It's basically that, oh, the marketing tagline is the future is for sale, is that it's like super neoliberalism, uh, so that now the wall, the stock market is, is the U.S. government basically. So you want to, uh, invest your money. What you do is you back, uh, juntas and then you take a percentage of the DD- GDP for a certain number of years before you, you know, maybe profits get bad and then you can do a new junta in that country. So it's like, Uber capitalism, right? It's like taking it to the logical extension. Um, it's just, you know, it's done for companies now, but there in this, it's done by companies. 
it, it's conflict more like the investment. earlier stages of uh, colonialism when you yeah. have like a like the Massachusetts Bay Company, for sure. Example. Hudson's um, Bay Company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, um, you know, you get a franchise. To, I think that's like a common. Well, like, that's exploitative of of uh, you know. Uh, uh, new lands that are, you know, different level technology. Uh, this is, and what's so weird about it too is it, it has like all this personal violence in that it, it's like road duels, like, like there was a game called Auto Duel and stuff like that. It's basically like road warriors in London while you're driving to work to work at this thing. So it's like, it's almost like a, uh, a satire. But it's not really a satire. And if you, I think I talked about market, not market forces, um, the unincorporated man, which is, uh, very influenced by Bellamy, right? It's a guy who goes back and, uh, uh, shows up in the future where everybody is a corporation and, uh, he's the only unincorporated person on the planet. <laughs> and, uh, so when you are going to school in unincorporated, unincorporated man, your parents have like shares in you and you don't get your shares from them until you turn a certain age. And then, uh, in order to pay for your schooling, you can get like a student loan that takes a certain percentage of your shares into the future. Is this uh is this Richard Morgan still? No, that's um a pair of Colin brothers, but it's a similar book except that one's way longer. Um Eli Colin, it's called The Unincorporated Man and there was a sequel which I didn't read. Unincorporated. I think there's two sequels after it actually. Unincorporated Man. There it is. I Danny Collin and Ivan Collin. Etan, yeah. I think they're brothers. I'm not sure. Yeah, not really Lois any. McMaster Bujold's book, Cryoburn, uh, there's a planet that everyone has voting shares, <clears throat> but the there's basically an oligarchy of rich people who put themselves to sleep and uh, have all the shares because of compound interest. <laughs> Yeah, that's I, I really uh, that's related. To her writing, um, she's a good writer, uh, and a th- a, a, like really a good writer. Um, she does series, which I'm not a fan of, but even those are individually pretty good. E- each book, like she, she's astoundingly good, and sort of reputation doesn't, um, she, you know, she's well known, but I don't think she's like her reputation is as high as it should be, given how good a writer she is. <laughs> I think she's great, and I in the um, Skiffy and Fanti reading Rangers, I'm on a bunch of podcasts talking about her Warcosican series. Mm-hmm. And her so fantasy is good, too. I would be happy to discuss which ones to read sometime. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at her Wikipedia page right now. So should uh, is the uh, uh, Varkosigan, is that like the series to start with? Or is there, I'm more of a space opera guy. Yeah, that's, a, that's very that's space, space opera. opera. Yeah, yeah those are a lot yeah. of fun. Cool. Um, the Curse of Chalion is our fantasy series. That, that first book's really good. It's like Game of Thrones, but not uh, unfinished in the way that that is. And also, it's, uh, she's very talented. I find uh, I think the first Martin's two books in that series are very good, and then they <clears throat> kind of fall off after that in that series. That series, yeah. Uh, basically, series are like that, though. But the first book stands alone, I think. It, you know, 
it, you don't need to read oh, the yeah, second one. Oh, yeah, you don't have to read the second one. The second one talks about a different character mm-hmm. and their adventures. Yeah, it's not like a half of a book, right? Right. Uh, like, yeah, I think that that whole um, George R. R. Martin thing is, it's... <laughs> It's not, it's one big story, right? Rather, it's, it doesn't tie itself off at the end of the first book. That's right. It's been so long since I read the, the first book, but I remember starting the second book and saying, this is taking forever. <laughs> Just do along. It was like 20 cassettes or something r- ridiculous. Cassettes back yep. in the day. You got it. I had it on my kitchen counter for so long, I would only listen in the kitchen. I'm like, I notice I'm not playing this. I just never finished the second book. Yeah, she's really good. Uh, she's not much of a short story writer, though, because I guess that's, there's no money in that. And she is a working and professional writer, which is very rare. Like, as a, that's her job, as far as I know. She had a few short stories, uh, but they, I think they've basically all been turned into fix ups. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, um, the way you do it, right? Um, ISFDB, but like, she, uh, what I really like too is she was very honest on Nut Cagey about her finances. She said, you know, most of my sales are coming through audiobooks very early on. And, and she actually had, she had done a bunch of audiobook work. Uh, well, her stuff had been done by a company called the Reader's Chair, unabridged, really early. Um, and uh that helped her, I think. But even when that company went under, even though that was ma- mostly what they sold as her stuff, um, she got picked up by Blackstone. And, um, you know, because of the, you know, series make the money. Um, and she's got a bunch. She's got, uh, of course, again, Sharing Knife, uh, World of Five Gods. I haven't read any of those. And then there's some sort of associated ones like The Falling Free. Is in the same like Mar- Corsican <laughs> series, right? World of Five Gods is Curse of Chalion, but oh, okay. for space opera, de- definitely read the Vorkosigan why, series. Why is it? Oh, I see the order. I uh, see. So Curse of Chalion came out two thousand one. The Hallowed Hunt came out two thousand five. That's the third book, but it's the first in the series. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. So um, we need to resolve all the Twitter beefs. Uh... Uh, Trish is mad at me for saying that a Larry Niven story from 1966 was better than all novels published in the 21st century. <laughs> what, I, wouldn't, I, I, I don't mad at you, Jesse. I just think that's that. pretty silly. But what, what story are you talking about, Jesse? Uh, it was in Constant Moon. In Constant Moon is a good story. I'm not. It is it. a good story. It's a, never good is that. good is a little bit damning with faint praise, though. It's an amazing story. It's it's an excellent story. It's um, one of his best stories, but better better than what was was it better than the novels published when all twenty first century novels. <laughs> no, just just Jesse so, going yet way published out, way out of range. But Trish I, Trish thought I was I was I was saying um, 
I was trashing 21st century novels, and I guess I am, but only in comparison to this particular story, right? Like, I was thinking about how, you know, it's such a good story, and nobody reads it compared to reading, I don't know, whatever's coming out this week. And and then I was, like, just struck by the fact that this is such an amazing, you know, like great story. And the thing is, is I'm comparing apples and oranges, right? I'm not comparing uh, it to short stories published in the 21st century because I don't think that that's arguable that <laughs> it would beat that everything because, you know, Ted Chang's been writing in the 21st century, right? And God damn it, that's a hard comparison. So I, I didn't even try. I went for an easy comparison. Like, uh, we've got, we've got uh, ice cream <laughs> and we've got durian. <laughs> Some people durian. like durian. But ice cream is, is, uh, you know, a great dessert. Jesse, I have an important question for you. (laughs) Yes, I'm sorry I was late, Will. I Uh, stayed up too late last night. That's not the important question. Oh, okay. Um, uh, You explained that in the, in the DMs. Did I? But, uh, the, uh, uh, the important question is, do you feel that you, you've done your homework and have read enough of a sampling of, uh, science fiction and fantasy novels published in the 21st century that you can, you can say this confidently. Yeah. I'd yeah. I'd like you to show your work here. Yeah, well, I did. I did actually, <laughs> if you How followed the thread novels, have you read? Justin? Well, but see, I think that that's ridiculous. Nobody could say that they read every 21st century. No, novel. I'm not saying I, I did not ask that. I asked how many have you read? Yeah. You're making a straw man, Jesse. No one demanded that you read every oh, okay. novel of the 21st century. All right. Century. Um, I have read many, but, if you're asking me how many, I cannot tell you because I do not know the answer. Um, but more importantly, I, I spend a lot of time researching whatever I'm going to read, right? Um, like, I, I before I read William Wilson, which was very recently, by the way, um, I spent a lot of time... The last hour? <laughs> um, I know you, Jesse. Uh, well, uh, no, I was still researching while I was in the shower this morning. So, yes, I, I, I mean, I... I didn't watch that short film that Trish watched, but let's save that for the podcast. Any other old business? I guess, Jesse, I think there's probably a a book (laughs) better than anything written in the 21st century. A book, but not a novel. The Bible, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Written in the 21st century. Amazing. No, better than anything written in the 21st century. No, I'm saying there must be a... Oh, certainly. Or, or. I would say there's dozens of books written in the 20th century that are better than everything written in the 21st century. Uh, every novel written in the 21st century. It's going to be pretty subjective. Oh, uh, well. I haven't done my homework. I have read The Dark Tower. Uh, so, like, I like The Inco- Unincorporated Man. I think that that's a good book. But it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's not better than anything. Like, it's not better than. Uh, so basically what I was doing is I was just comparing one story by Larry Niven to all novels <laughs> in the 21st century, which is a very weird thing to do. Um, oh, is that the tweet? No, well, no, no. This is, this is a friend of mine who, who's been doing a, basically a, a poll on Hugo, Hugo novels. And I, and now, now they're up to the quarterfinals actually. And they basically just took all the yeah, Hugo I think winners it's and basically basically ranked them against each other, and people are voting on it. Yeah, I can't pull for Leibowitz is not all this. It's not all that. Well, 
Well, then, then if you want, feel motivated to vote in the poll, you're going to vote for the dispossessed. Then, I, I'm not sure that I've read the dispossessed. I, I've read a lot about it. I've heard the audio drama. Um, oh, that's pretty. That's a good book. Yeah, yeah it seems interesting. Really it seems read along worthy. Oh, um, one of the reasons I was late um, is I was up late talking to Connor, my uh, U, uh, not UK, my Australian oh, fan. Um, he's a really good uh, YouTuber. And, uh, he's, he recorded a show for us. Um, but I, coordinating the times really fucked up because he's not like, um, he's, he, he's, staying he's up a, all night. Almost a day in the future, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's way, so the, just add to the schedule. I think Paul's away. Um, if, oh no, he's not. Okay. So Hawks of Outremer, um, is now scheduled for October 4th, which is a Saturday. At 7 p.m. Pacific Standard. So 11 hours later. 7 p.m., yeah. That's to fit his schedule, right? Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and get, um, Mark Finn on for that because he's a Robert E. Howard guy. Um, 7 p.m. on a Saturday. I I think Will might be interested because that's REH. He's getting into an REH pick. yeah, I'll have. Oh, to I I just assume but... Paul is available and interested. I I started typing. Are uh, you into it, Paul? So seven p.m. Pacific. Yeah. Okay, so I might be a couple minutes late. Saturday evenings are generally my game thing, but they get out about okay. seven p.m. Pacific. All right, and uh, Will, um, I don't know what time it would be for Evan. It'd be seven hours later. Is that the morning for you? Oh, wait, no. It would be 12 it, hours. 11 hours later, yeah. Before now, right? Yes, 11 hours from now. Essentially, it would actually be a good time. It would be like okay. Sunday afternoon. I'm usually doing my own podcast. So. <laughs> Do you want to be in on this one? I thought I was already down for that one. No, I just different. put it on the schedule. This is a new one. Was there uh, a different Howard on the schedule? Um, oh, maybe maybe it was listed w- without a date. Yeah, mine might have been in the bottom. Uh, what about you, Trish? Are you a Howard? Yeah, you're How- Howardian. I am a Howard fan. I Howardian. All right. Well, this is convenient. I, I figured almost nobody would be available. Um, Hawks of Utremer, uh, and Trish. Okay. I'll have to buy it, I guess. I, I don't no, have that one. But, no, we so. have the uh, audiobook coming and it's public domain. Oh, cool, cool. All yeah. right. Um, it's a, it's a crusader story with Saladin. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, Robert E. Howard's version of the Punisher. He's got like a skull on his jerkin. <laughs> it, okay. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. It's going to be cool. And there's a comic book, which you probably will have to buy unless you're able to read digital comics, which I suck. Um, excellent. I, I prefer to hold a comic Me too. in my hand if possible, but I can it's, it's, look at uh, one on the screen if necessary. Yeah, okay. I'll I'll organize that sometime in the future. Jewels of the Seven Star Jewel of the Seven Stars is next week. Um Paul, Misa, Will, and Evan have signed up for that. That's a novel. Um it's by uh Bram Stoker, Trish. Here. Um, Bram Stoker. No, I could probably get through that this week. Yeah, it's a, it's a novel length. I'll be working on editing the audio together, and and there's a movie. There's at least one movie, um, and there's uh, a ripoff story that I expect Will to read <laughs> called um, "The Jewel of the Seven Stones" by Seabury Quinn. 
That'll be my first Seabury Quinn story. Good. I was actually thinking about how I wanted to read that one, too. Okay, um, good. This morning, so uh, I'm very suggestible. Yeah, well, uh, and the good news is you, you like reading trash. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what, what it comes down to. I'm not a, uh, down for that. I don't want to read Seabury Quinn because I, I, I have a feeling I'm going to hate him. I've never read any words by him that made me. Go, I, I've, I've I got to read more because I got I got a review copy of because you know, they've been re uh, reprodu- re uh, doing a lot of his work in those volumes and I started reading it and I was like eh it's not for me and I mm. put it aside. They're really pretty not. volumes those uh, re. They, they, it was it was nice and gorgeous shiny. painting. Like, Ooh, this is be interesting. Eh. I really want to like it, but I I, when, I I can't remember any of the stories I've read by him and. He was so popular. He his popularity rivaled Howard and Lovecraft, um, and and not just uh, you know with the editor, also with the readers. They would always mention Seabury Quinn, which is so crazy because he's you know we think maybe of, they knew something we don't. Uh, well, clearly Clark Ashton Smith would get named, but not quite as much as Seabury Quinn, Robert E. Howard, and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. In the letters, it's just crazy. Everybody liked him, and all uh, like more people seem to like him than liked Robert E. Howard. It's just the and Lovecraft. It's just that uh, the people were more passionate about who liked Lovecraft and Howard were more passionate about uh, Lovecraft and Howard. So there, there's definitely something there, which is why I can't dismiss him. Like I can dismiss August Derleth, who's. Writing I mean, Shakespeare consistently was not the most bad. popular playwright of his time in his time. Right, so, right. There was something that's to be said about the long game as far as these things come. Absolutely. Okay, so um, also, Paul, uh, we booked it so that you're uh, you're not going to be upset. Uh, we're going to read ra- Rage. Rage? Uh, <laughs> so you booked Rage so I can't wa- read Rage. Well, you don't want to read Rage. It's Which the school shooting Stephen you King book. You read it if you want. Which one is Rage? It's the school shooting Stephen King that he self-banned. Oh, yeah, that's not. Really oh, fun. when's that scheduled? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious what the. I never read it. I'm. I'm curious it's, what the problem with it is because oh, I looked it up, man. Different seasons has a sh- has a student shooter. Um, I gotta tell you, um, when I right? was looking it up on Wikipedia. Oh yeah, yeah, but get this, um, the number of people who killed people uh, in schools. Who are connected to Kentucky? Huge. Oh yeah, yeah. My girlfriend oh. Meg is from one of the towns where a school shooting happened. Yeah, and and like the it, it I thought, oh, he's just a little oversensitive. No, it came and came and it kept happening, and they had the copies of the book. At least that's oh. what it says on the Wikipedia. I I reviewed the Columbine book when it came out, and uh, that was. Really interesting because almost everything that came out uh, at the time was bullshit. You know, like if you all remember those stories, uh, there was like a girl. There was a meme. I guess it was, was it a meme she, back then. She the girl said who's, yes. Yes, she said yes. Like oh, we have a copy of that book. It was like totally fabricated by her parents. Hundred percent fabricated, and there was a similar incident, but it was not her. And the girl who who uh, actually said something similar. Um, was trashed in the media, whereas the one who didn't actually say that in the book came out and was a big sensation. Um, was, was Are bullshit. people familiar with this anecdote? 
I would guess not. It's so oh, long yeah. ago. It, it, it's only sounds vaguely familiar. Refresh yeah, well, the, the the urban legend is that the killer was going around like asking people if they believed in God. Oh yeah, like, something. Yeah, yeah. And he like, shot her because she said yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds familiar now. Yeah, and it was bullshit. But what you find out about Rage specifically? So this seemed to have really inspired. Yeah. So if you, you, King's writing that stuff all the time. I mean, Carrie is just the a, no, the kid it's, school shooter book too. It's Wikipedia, so you know, take it with a grain of salt. But um, there are a number of shootings listed, um, and several of the shooters, school shooters, had copies of the Bachman books in their uh, locker or home library and the thing is is Stephen King does really play well with I want to say students kids who who don't like reading stuff from school right um and he was filled with a lot of rage right I mean those Bachman books are full full of anger and so you can see the sympathy and it is the United States but what's so weird is the number of of shootings in Kentucky alone that had it. I was like, why is, why is Kentucky so big on this list? So that's Will's homework for that one. It's yeah, going to be a big yeah, I'll, homework. I'll think about that. So when is this one scheduled? That's uh, 1018. Yeah. If all goes well, I will be somewhere else on an adventure. If COVID, will, if COVID will let me. Mm-hmm. Because I'm already, I'm already been told by someone in Utah, like I should stay away from Salt Lake City because it's now a hotspot. Like, Great. Okay, let's rewrite and the plan. They also have bad air. We finally got our uh, air back. You guys have been smoking us out. Um, Not me. You're talking about the Pacific Northwest. Hey, hey you're in the same country, except for Evan. Yes. <laughs> trying to smoke us out, like, like George W. Bush said. Whatever. Yeah, we just dump our pollution on Japan. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you laugh about that, but growing up on Staten Island, which is a borough of New York City, we would always complain about the pollution coming across the river from New Jersey because we could smell it all the time. So we hated Jersey for that. But Paul, there's a, I think I don't know if it's a book or an article, but it was written by a historian, I think, and I have a very vague recollection of it. But it's it's been a few years ago. But someone wrote it like a history of this kind of nationalism and weather. Mm-hmm. And how common it is to blame other countries for like bad weather, <laughs> and it's actually a running motif throughout the nineteenth really? century I history. I did not yeah. know that. That's interesting. Blame is very like the French and the Germans, yeah. or the Canadians and Americans. Yeah, diseases. Think of all the diseases, right? The yeah, that Wuhan flu, right, is what they say, and and the Spanish flu, I mean, and the French disease, right? Those guys, are French Frenchmen are coming over and having sex with our women and giving me syphilis. God damn those French. <laughs> Ridiculous. Uh, uh, yes, I will add you to the stoker. Did I not do that? Okay. You're allowed to speak, Trish. Uh, let me interject a minute. <laughs> I have relatives here who oh. are very kindly... Installing a new toilet for me since uh, the the tank was cracked on the old one, so there may be some noises. I'm okay. going to keep keep myself muted uh, on my microphone okay. most of the time when I'm not. Are you getting talking. a bidet? Because uh, if you if you if they haven't installed it yet, get one of those. I mean, it should be. I don't know what they bought. 
they're they're taking care of it, and I okay. don't have to worry about it. All right. Okay. <laughs> I like. I guess it depends on the on the like if it's an upgrade or something because I I replaced the little donut thing for my parents uh-huh. a couple summers ago and it didn't make any noise. There's some amazing technology out there. Yeah, but <laughs> I guess if you the whole bigger or something was was cracked. Yeah, yeah but you're putting like in a new operation. toilet. Yeah. Um, the, uh, speaking of toilets and science fiction, um, there is a <laughs> Ted Chang. This is a total Will story. Ted Chang story called Prusy's Pot. Uh, not Ted Chang, a Ted Sturgeon. It's like, so, oh, it's, oh, I saw Big like, difference. What? Slight difference, yes. Yeah, I was like, I don't know anything about Ted Chang, but Jesse's never like tried to push him on me before. But then you said Ted Sturgeon, and I was like, oh, yeah. yeah Theodore okay, Sturgeon's story, uh, Prusy's well, Pot. You really should read Ted Chang. Really read his stories. Yes, he should. Really yes. good. He's he is the proof that the 21st century is not full of shit. Uh, in terms of science fiction, he's amazing. He's like uh, one of the best science fiction writers ever. I'm including, you know, all the ladies from the 19th century and the 20th century dudes. It's amazing. You should definitely read him. And anyway, we were talking slow. about Ted Sturgeon. Yeah. Uh, so there, Spider Robinson had a podcast. Um, uh, is he still alive? Did he die recently? I know his wife died and he sort of went off the internet. But no, uh, as far as I know, he hasn't died. His wife died, but not. Yeah, okay. Know he's still- uh, we got really depressed, <laughs> which is not surprising, but. Uh, he was alive and going back in public again 71. as a Lone Star Con uh, well, when was a few that? years ago, WorldCon. Okay. All right. Yeah, he's he actually lives pretty close uh, on island just off of uh, North Van, North Vancouver. I used, to read, I used to read a lot of Spider Robinson. He's a good writer. He's he's fun. I mean, uh, and more importantly, he has um, good attitudes about what to read. Like you read what he's talking. about. He's very enthusiastic. Well, well, he he's he's a very big he's a big Highland promoter. I remember reading. There's his, that uh, for sure. His uh. His essay, Ra Ra Ra, which was basically an offensive Heinlein. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first thing of his I read was that essay. But, you know, he, he's a Donald Westlake fan. He's a fan of John D. MacDonald. So, yeah, if, Will, you've read any uh, Spider Robinson? No, he's on the list because he, uh, I think he wrote a short story about Philip Jose Farmer's daughter. Yeah, he would totally be a, a farmer boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's, he's, I mean, I haven't heard his pod, he'd stopped doing his podcast, but I think, but, um, yeah, he got really depressed when his wife died. Um, but he's got a series of books called the Callahan books that are basically remixes of other SF with his own characters and. Well, they're they're a lot of fun. I've read three of his of those spider of those uh, Callahan's collections, and um, they have some interesting things to say. But uh, don't go near them if you don't enjoy puns, because (laughs) yeah, he's an yes, he's uh, irascible when it comes to puns. Wow, it's good. uh, I've read uh, probably six or eight of his things. I haven't read that Variable Star um, he did with. Uh, Heinlein's ghost or whatever. Um, but he also has another series called Very Bad Deaths, and it's followed with a book called Very Hard Choices. Those were good too. Um, 
those are sort of his last things, 2008, I said. But, um, yeah, he's good. And he, he would, um, get people's permission or estate's permission or whatever to record, uh, various stories for his podcast. I don't know if those are available anywhere anymore, but, um, he did Prusy's pot. And I was like, what? I never heard of this Ted Chang story. Why am I saying Ted Chang? Ted Sturgeon story. Ted Sturgeon. You, just, you love Ted Chang like you love Evan. It's just you can't stop talking about him. <laughs> it's true. He loves me. I do love you. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'm always promoting your podcast. And it's not because I'm. Yeah, I know. I'm uh, a hater. <laughs> well, it's because you're doing great work, right? I mean. Yeah, I had a good one today starting Aldo Leopold. Pretty excited about that. <laughs> I love Evans. Evan just name drops people I've never heard of, and then I'm like, "Oh, that sounds interesting." <laughs> he was a, a conservation writer from the 30s and 40s. Okay, cool. I'm looking for that. Tony Almanac is a uh, is Spider Robinson's podcast called Spider on the Web. Yep, that's it. Uh, it's it, let's see, 2007 through 2013 is still uh, up on iTunes anyway. Yeah, okay. it's on my podcast. Oh, that's good. Uh, catcher, uh, cast box. It's it's a really good podcast. He's a really good reader. He did um, a lot of narration of audiobooks for uh, his own stuff on Blackstone's website, Downpour. Um, definitely worth checking out. He he mostly did novels, um, but that first Callahan book I think is a fix up. Um, which and it, he was very popular in the eighties as sort of you know one of the Humor guys. Anyways, um, uh, do we finish all old business? I think so. I guess there wasn't that much Twitter drama that I saw. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, very, because I do have a game today, so we probably should get going and get this podcast on the road. So I saw uh, uh, Twitter drama. Speaking of which, I saw um, Paul's full-throated half endorsement of Biden. And I've, I was, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write up a big long tweet and I'm like, nah. <laughs> I gotta study more William Wilson. <laughs> oh my. So, there. Oh, I saw have, Tenet. Oh, that's, was it, what, what, I, I is it any Tenet good? On the big screen. I don't know anything like about it? it. Not particularly not? liked it. It's like I, no, it's not like. Is it important? It's hard question. to figure out. Okay. I don't know. It's. Pretty straightforward, I think. It's kind of interesting. I was kind of bored, though. Oh, yeah, he makes long movies. And like, I didn't really feel the characters that much. He's not really good Uh, at characters either. It's kind of interesting idea. Okay. I guess Kenneth Branagh is probably the highlight of that. Acting. Yeah, he's like the villain. (laughs) He's the most interesting villain. Yeah, I don't really know anything about it other than it's by the guy who did a bunch of movies I liked. Just, uh, I can spoil it. Yes, please. The future, uh, basically runs out of resources, so they, ha- they, they figure out how to, like, make time go backwards, so the only way oh. they can't go forward anymore, because they're out of, basically, resources, so they're going to reverse time, but that's going to fuck us, our world. <laughs> so we can blame so, them. Oh, no. so they have to stop the future from getting this algorithm, which was like that will allow them to do that to reverse time. 
Sounds good. Yeah, that's the thing. So the whole movie's backwards. That's the only. That's the. That's the. Key. That's his so, first movie so, too. So, so so it's like Memento. Is yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it just sounds like a movie. Yeah, the whole I... movie is basically told in reverse. But it's not like Memento in the same way, because it does, the narrative is forward, but it's only at the end you realize that it's all inverted. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, it sounds like a movie to watch, for sure. Yeah, I think watch it once, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I paid like 12 bucks to see it on the big screen. Where, was it thing. full? The theater? A bunch of Chinese people walked out of it. Baffled. <laughs> Speaking of which, did you see the tweet I DM'd you, <laughs> Evan? Um, it was yeah. it was two. It was somebody saying, um, <laughs> responding to somebody saying, I don't know that this lady. Uh, she was a meme. I don't know. She was yelling it. I don't really know anything about it other than the the joke was really funny. Um, uh, the response was marrying an Asian woman to get away from being harassed in a shrill, annoying voice. It's like trying to protect yourself from a flamethrower by pouring gasoline on yourself. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, but the I've heard that I, I, I lucked out that way. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a stereotype, which is why is it it's so funny, right? Because um, <laughs> um, you may have meant to DM that, but it's right out there in your oh, uh, did, tweets and replies. Oh no, I you know I also DM'd it to him. Yeah. Um, so I don't know who either of those ladies are. I've I've seen them yelling uh in the timeline. Um and I just press play and it's hilarious because whoever put the video together um has them talking over each other. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, run away. <laughs> um <laughs> it was so stupid. <laughs> That's why I like Twitter. Is the, people have these ridiculously, but the the guy, the Bay Sheba guy, he, he, the rest of the comment thread is very, um, <laughs> it's very thoughtful. Whereas the first part is just a funny joke. Um, I thought, anyways, if you if y'all want to see that, I just thought that that's funny because, um, yeah, it didn't sound like uh, Evan uh, married an Asian lady who would. Uh, fit this stereotype because stereotypes don't fit, yeah, especially my, for my millions friend, and millions of people. Of these. Actually, my coworker got one of these. Yeah, but but there is all this. He, he was out at the bar with me till five five a.m. and he's been like grounded for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> he's like a grown man. <laughs> she's really the thing is she's really hot. <laughs> I, I think this guy's in big trouble. <laughs> He's gonna have to work till the day he dies. She's like a Shanghai woman from a fairly rich. Family. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh my god! All right, um, who wants to do a show on William Wilson?